Game night is the best night. And we're not talking rummy, canasta, or baccarat. All your games in one place. This is Sportsnet Tonight on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet tonight across the Sportsnet radio network. Show Ali and George Russick along for the ride with you for the next, I guess, about three hours. We'll be here until the end of the Raptors game, at which point we will make way for Will Lou on Raptors reaction. He will be uh, taking your calls, your texts. And, of course, uh, you can always uh, give us a text as well at 590-590 about anything you really want. But, of course, uh, Raptors and Leafs will be the uh, primary focus tonight. We'll sprinkle in some MLB discussions as well. Sarah Langs will be uh, by in the second hour of this program to talk some World Series. But, of course, uh, the Raptors, if you're uh, wondering about the status of Scotty Barnes, the uh, young rookie phenom, uh, Scotty Barnes will not be in the lineup tonight. I believe there were some reports, in case you had seen this before, there were some reports that Scotty had been uh, dribbling around with, uh, you know, the no protection on his injured right hand pregame. So it looked like he was generally speaking okay. But in uh, Nick Nurse's pregame media availability, it sounds like Barnes will not be available for the uh, game against the Knicks. I wonder, you know what, I, I often wonder, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the or heard the video of those Knicks fans. Uh, I, I want to say we, I, I'd say we play the audio for you, but it is quite profane. Like, I think if you, if we had to, to, to mute any of that or, or censor any of that, it would just be all bleeps because it is a lot of, a lot of cussing going on, I would say. Okay. So uh, that I, I, I do wonder though, if the Raptors do beat the Knicks without Scotty Barnes tonight, if we, if we might not see some uh, perhaps some similar, similar type things, from the Raptors faithful. I, I do wonder how many people will be visiting uh, Madison Square Garden tonight to see the Raptors take on those Knicks. But again, no Scotty Barnes. Uh, we will chat some Raptors throughout the program. But of course, Will Lou will do most of that after the show. Uh, Luke Fox will be by in about 30 minutes time. Luke Fox, of course, of Sportsnet.ca. We'll chat with him about the NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman's uh, press conference from earlier today. And of course, we'll get into Leafsland after the... 5-4 victory on Saturday night with, uh, you know, Sheldon Keefe mixing things up. Justin Hall sitting, Timothy Liljegren getting to play, Mitch Marner finally getting off the schneid and scoring a goal. I mean, it's uh, John Tavares had the three-point night. And now I, I know the Red Wings are sitting ahead of the Leafs when it comes to... When it comes to the overall standings, I am aware of how, how the Atlantic looks right now. I believe it's Florida, Buffalo, Detroit, Tampa Bay, Toronto in the uh, one through five spots. But when it comes to Toronto's place in the NHL, I'm not, uh, I'm not 100% worried about where, if they might make the playoffs or not, right? Because I, I remember I was speaking to a Leaf Nation co-host Gord Stellick over the weekend and Gord said to me and I think this is how many people feel when it comes to the Leafs right it almost doesn't matter as long as the Leafs make the playoffs it almost doesn't matter what happens in games one through 82 that's kind of where I fall these days it almost doesn't matter right I think where what I would like to see when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs I want to see what happens in game 83 plus 
game 84. And I guess you're hoping, let's say they get to, let's say it takes six games or seven games. Let's say they get takes game 89 and they win game 89 of the season. That means there will be a game 90. And you know what? That's it's all gravy from there. I understand the way this team is constructed that you can't just have a, 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 a win in 89 and four straight losses through to game 94. You know what I mean? Like we want to see, you want to see more from this core because I think the, the real concerns will be when in the next, I guess, three seasons, if I'm thinking off the top of my head without looking at cap friendly, which is a great resource. But I, I do, I do genuinely wonder what people will think of the Leafs, even if they just manage to get out of the first round, honestly, that, that, that is my general question because that has been the issue getting out of the first round for so, so long. And of course, you you know you can't just say it's a success to get out of the first round because you want to see a Stanley Cup win. But at the same time, boy, I just, I, anyways, Luke Fox will be along and we'll continue chatting with him on the 5-4 uh, win for the Leafs. And of course, they'll be taking on the Vegas Golden Knights. I believe other games this week in, include the game, a game against the Bruins and a game against the Tampa Bay Lightning. So if you're, if you're like me and you see two straight wins over teams like the Chicago Blackhawks and of course the Red Wings then i would think i would think generally speaking generally speaking i would think that you know you want to see this team go against better quality opponents and actually win right because again even though the Red Wings are ahead of the Leafs in the overall standings they're 4-3 and 2 to the Leafs 4-4 four, four, and 1 the Red Wings have 10 points the Toronto's 9 you know i don't know that anyone is uh, is 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 holding their breath for this continued state of the Detroit Red Wings? Like it's possible that the Iser plan. I know we call things here in Toronto the Shanna plan. So let's call let's call his former teammate uh, the Iser plan. Let's say if that's the Iser plan, then finally after some truly dismal seasons in Detroit, maybe it's finally starting to come along. But boy, I uh, I don't know that anyone's really holding their breath for Detroit to be in a top three spot on the Atlantic by the end of the season. Um, and, and certainly Buffalo as well. And again, I don't mean to crap on any Sabres fans who are listening out there, but I do think that when it comes to the Sabres, I mean, Jack Eichel might not even be a Sabre. I know he hasn't been involved in all of this, but he may not be a Sabre by the end of the week. Who knows, right? Things to be, seem to be moving relatively quickly there. Probably won't be even be in the Atlantic anymore. It would be, it would be nice if he was a Leaf, but I mean, let's be real with the cap constraints. That's not going to happen. Florida is the really interesting is the really interesting study for me, right? Because, I mean, they still, they won their first game with uh, Andrew Brunette as the interim head coach with Joe Quenville out for very good reason, of course. But Florida being constructed the way they are and, you know, with the Sam Reinhardt and, and, and certainly Alexander Barkov taking uh, a bulk of the load, I just, I do really wonder if the Leafs can hang on and, and get above teams like Tampa Bay, like Florida, we'll have to see what Boston is right now. Right. And again, it's up to you. If you think Detroit is going to hold on to this, this uh, not, I mean, it is a lead, but hold on to their place in the division. I, I personally don't think so. Same goes for Buffalo. Like I've been saying, but when you look at the Leafs themselves, I mean, mentioned it already, but the Leafs did stir up some things, right? They changed up some of the pairings specifically on defense the top line still has to get jump-started a little bit, I would say. But overall, when it comes to t the Toronto Maple Leafs, I just, I'm really curious to see what we'll get more out of when it comes to Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Liljegren.
Lilligren is, is someone, I mean, gosh, I don't even, I, I barely remember when he was drafted because remember he had the case of mono and then he barely, barely saw any ice time, even when he was with the Marlies, it felt like. And he, he was, there were a couple times where he was called up and then immediately sent back down or was inactive entirely and spent the time in the press box and all sorts of stuff. And same goes for Sandine. And you'd hear those quotes with uh, Sheldon Keefe, you know, in his first, you know, his first several months as a head coach of the, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he'd say, okay, you know what? We're just telling Sandine to be patient. We're just telling him to, to relax. We're just telling him that his time will come. Well, I guess his time is now, right? I mean, they're, like I said, they're shaking things up. And uh, I just, at this point, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what Justin Hall is, right? I mean, is he an NHL caliber defenseman? Kind of feels like, you know, we're still, the jury's still out on that question, unfortunately. Oh, boy. I just We've talked about this before. George will be along in a minute, by the way. I think he's just having some... Uh, the, the realities of working from home in 2021 means that uh, George is having some phone issues. So he will uh, join us, relatively speaking, very shortly. But he will be along later on in this program. But George and I have talked about this before. The idea that the, the Muzzin-Hall line... I, whenever I say Rasmus Sandin's name, I'm always this close to saying Jake Muzzin. But no, that's not his name. Jake Muzzin... And Justin Hall being uh, Justine, no, uh, Jake Muzzin and uh, Justin Hall being on the same pairing. And now that Muzzin is what, a couple of years older, probably carrying around some injuries. Attrition for when it comes to injuries always sets in for every team. And I know the Leafs have dealt with some stuff here early on. It's still what? It's November 1st today. But, uh, you know, it's really interesting to see how. Jake Muzzin's, and it's not a decline by any means, but he he's just, it always kind of felt like Muzzin was propping up Hall when it came to the deep pairings for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, and I just, it's just really, it's really fascinating to see that Hall may not be in the plans going forward when it comes to these very Toronto Maple Leafs. And we'll have to see what the uh, deep pairings will shake out, whether Lillard can get some more minutes, let's say, on the defensive side when it comes to uh, tomorrow night's game against the uh, Vegas Golden Knights. But, of course, George, George is here. He uh, finally hey. made it. How's it going, George? Super. How are you? Good. So I, I guess what what happened? Did you did you drop your phone to the toilet? What happened? No, no, that's gross. Uh, but we all bring our phone into the toilet. But uh, no, just a little technical snafu, and uh, it'll have to be like this. Is this fine? Does this sound good? Yeah, I mean, you know what? In a pinch, it sounds okay. <laughs> just okay. All yeah. Right. You, well, what are you going to do, right? Such as that life. sucks. Yeah, that does suck. I don't know what's wrong with it. Issue right now trying to get online to figure it out. But as of right now, it'll be like this and such is life when we're doing shows from home during a global pandemic. Exactly. Well, I, well, I was talking with, uh, with, with myself and with all the listeners about uh, the, the defensive pairings for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And that's something you and I have talked a lot about over the last, well, I guess since the season started, right? About this, specifically about the uh, Hall-Muzzin line. And we can talk about the Morgan Riley extension, certainly. But I just, I just, I'm curious as to what you have made out of the play of some of the youngsters, like Rasmus Sandin and uh, Timothy Liljegren. You know what? I, I thought, I liked Travis Dermott's game on Saturday night. You know why? Because we didn't really notice him. Sure. That's what I liked. And it's funny how we think of Travis Dermott as a kid, and he's still really not a kid at this point of his NHL career. But I liked what I saw from him on Saturday, skating with Morgan Riley. I thought it was different, and I liked it. And, again, he's a guy that so many people had so many high hopes for. And I just liked his game. Obviously, skating is the strong part of his game. And I just liked that I didn't really notice him in that game against the Red Wings on Saturday night. Sure, he had a couple snafus a little bit here and there, especially in the first period. 
giving up a couple turnovers. But generally speaking, I thought he was solid on Saturday night. Yeah, I didn't mind what I saw from Travis Dermott. I, I admit, I just uh, is there an argument now still? You think to have Hall over Dermott when it comes to the the current pairings? It's a tough one, right? Because this is what we do in Toronto. We overrate guys right away, and I don't. I didn't feel the need to give Justin Hall that extension that he got last year, right? I thought it was way too early for Justin Hall's extension. I felt it was unnecessary, and this management group wanted to lock him down and he's struggling right now and there's another example of a guy and this isn't a slight towards justin hall is justin hall an nhl defenseman absolutely is justin hall a guy you can put on your shutdown pair and rely on heavy minutes in the pinch and tough situations and high leverage situations i'm not sure and jake muzzin's is it injuries? Probably. He's dealing with something. He hasn't been the same guy this season, and I think that's starting to show on Justin Hall because I think Jake Muzzin was covering up a lot of those deficiencies that Justin Hall was having, and I think he's been exposed a little bit this season. And if Justin Hall's on your 5-6 pair, I'm okay with that. I'm just not sure he's a shutdown defenseman unless he's playing with Jake Muzzin, who was Toronto's best defensive defenseman last year. Even as Tyler Toffoli, when he was on the 32 Thoughts podcast, or 31 thoughts at the time, where he said when Jake Muzzin went down in that series, the Habs knew they were going to win because he's such a key member of that blue line. Yeah, it's true. I just, I, I just, I, I'm not sure because you and I have had this discussion before. The idea that the the Toronto Maple Leafs, and this is not uh, breaking news by any means, but that simply the Toronto Maple Leafs don't have a true, you know, number one defenseman. And I mean, they just they just signed Morgan Riley to the to the huge deal, which kicks in next season. Um, and, you know, you and I have also discussed before that the, the possibility that he may not have even lasted this season as a Leaf or, you know, maybe at the end of the season he walks in free agency. But he definitely left money on the table when it comes to staying here in Toronto. And, I mean, you know what? That's cool. I think that's good. I think that does a lot for his, certainly for his own image and a lot to endear him to the fans. But that doesn't really solve the issue of the Leafs still not having a true number one and, and probably at least uh, there's some part of the, that, that this is important. but. Uh, a true number one right-handed defenseman. Yeah, again, that's that's an issue that's been plaguing this team for years, right, is the lack of a true big-time right-handed defenseman. And we know there is such a premium in the NHL, right, that you've got to find that right-handed shutdown defenseman. Where can you find those guys? They're very hard to find. They get locked down to big monster contracts. And, again, it goes back to what you and I were talking about uh, on Thursday night. It's just – the Leafs don't have that number one guy, and you just got to make do with guys who are twos and threes, and you hope that's enough, and you hope that your forward group, which you're sunk in so much money into the salary cap towards, can carry you to playoff success. That's, that's the formula for this Maple Leafs team. That's, that's what they did. That's why when you put all that money into Matthews, Marner, Nylander, and Tavares, uh, That's the formula. Now you're paying Morgan Riley almost $8 million next season. It feels like one of those guys are going to leave this core, and if this team doesn't have playoff success this year, maybe it is time to shake up the core and try to try a different approach. But this is what the Leafs are. Their their blue line was okay last season, and that's supposed to be the formula around here. Just have a good to average blue line, and your scoring should be able to carry you through. It's just we haven't seen that early on in the season outside of that Saturday game against the Red Wings where they just outscored Detroit. Yeah, I just, I just, I just wonder if now – 
the Morgan Riley extension, seven and a half million dollars for eight more years starting next year. Right. So that's the deal for Morgan Riley. I just I wonder, George, if eventually it may not be this coming off season. I feel like the, the coming casualty of the Morgan Riley contract will be Alex Kerfoot and his three and a half million dollars if they can they can move that somehow. But I mean, if it's if it, either way, like it just feels like looming soon because of all the money that's being paid to, to Jake Muzzin, certainly to, to Morgan Riley and to all, obviously the other four, the, the core four, I guess we've been calling them, Matthews, Tavar, Tavares, Marner, and Nylander. I just feel like eventually we're going to have to have the conversation. I don't have all of their no-movement stuff. I, I don't think any of them has a full no-move clause. Maybe Tavares does, but I don't know if any of the other guys do. But it, it certainly feels like the conversation around moving one of the core four maybe in the next two to three years is going to be something to they're going to have to look at. Yeah, well, that's, again, right? Like, I I think you have to eventually. And what what's the succession plan for this blue line, right? Because Muzzin's in his 30s. He ain't getting any younger. Is it Lilligren and Sandine? Like, is that really the plan here moving forward, that one of those guys can essentially figure it out? Like, is that the issue? Like, can, can one of those guys be rookies good enough to move forward and you can rely on your blue line with that? Yeah, exactly. I think we'll ha- we'll have to see. Certainly, I was. I admit, I I was I was encouraged, generally speaking, George, by what I saw. Certainly, out of Rasmus Sandin, I like the kind of quick passing he he does. He keeps the he kind of maintains possession with the puck a lot. I, I have to say, I really do like Sandin, and it, it, you know, we you and I have discussed this in the past as well when it comes to other and like star defensemen, even like guys like Victor Hedman. Um, and I want I want to say Victor Hedman was drafted number two overall behind Tavares himself. But, uh, I mean, look how long it took him to break into the NHL. And then here you go. I'm not, I'm not saying Rasmus Sandin is going to be Victor Hedman or Lilligren will be Hedman, though that would be nice. But ultimately, from the, in this young stage of their careers, I have liked, like, a lot, I got to say, what I've seen out of Sandin. I know it's basically just one game, essentially, for Lilligren against the Red Wings, probably his best game as a, as a Toronto Maple Leaf, best game of his career, I'd say, in the NHL. But, well, I guess we'll have to see if that does, uh, does keep up uh, going forward because I, I would imagine... If Hall continues to struggle, we'll see more of uh, both Timmy and uh, and Sandine. Well, isn't that isn't I love that example of uh, Victor Hedman because there was a lot of talk that was this number one overall guy a bust, right? And it just took him a little longer than a lot of other number one picks, and that happens. And show it goes back to the old adage that uh, it takes two hundred games in the NHL for a player to really get their footing. Yeah, that's true. It really does. It 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 really does take take a lot. Um, I just what like why do you think I had this conversation with Gord a little while ago? I just I wonder why it takes defensemen more time than it does forwards. Is it, is it just because of the way the game has evolved? Do you think, or is it just just because the, just because of the way that position is played versus forwards? Who I guess can I, I suppose can step in and contribute a little more immediately as long as they're you know they put some put some meat on their bones. I guess. Yeah, it, and is that better? Oh, much better. Wow. All right. Is that a better connection? Okay. Yeah. The phone worked. We're good. There you go. Let's all relax. Let's have a good show. Let's chill out. There you go, George. I was getting angry. No, I'm not angry anymore. <laughs> the anger has subsided. Technology's on our side again. Um, that is a great question. Why does it take 200 games? I just think it's all about positioning, right? And that affords guys who are playing longer in the NHL uh, once they figure out where to go, when to go there, uh, you can buy a lot of time. Like the prime example of, look at Shea Weber last year. Show dealing with those litany of injuries and playing tough like he was. The guy ain't the fastest skater anymore at this point of his career, but he knows where to be positionally. 
And that's an enormous difference where to go, when to go, how to play the position, how to play the angles, how to cut guys off, how to slow down their speed. That just takes experience to do at the NHL level. And that's why it's the hardest position to learn, right? I think center is probably right next to to, to playing defense, especially with what you have to do in your own zone and face-offs. But defense is such a different animal still, even in today's NHL. If you're a rookie, you can get on the wing, you can score a ton of goals. Life is great. But a guy who makes an instant impact on the blue line is rare. Look at look at Kale McCarr in Colorado this year. Show he's like a minus ten already or something. And a lot of people don't like plus minus stats. I get it. But he's struggling in his second year. He was a guy who was unbelievable for the Avalanche. A guy we're talking about for Team Canada on the blue line. He's struggling in his second year here because it is so damn hard to play defense in the NHL. Yeah, I mean, you look, and look at guys like I mean, you mentioned Makar, which I think that's a, a great example for for current current young guys in this league. I mean, I think because Makar and guys like Quinn Hughes and Miro Heiskanen all like kind of jumped off the page and were so good immediately. It almost it almost felt like you know they were like it almost felt like you you look at them and you think to yourself, oh well, if they're if they're so good, then why aren't highly highly touted prospects like Sandine and Lilligren you know mm-hmm. contributing more? But I mean, here you go, here we are. It, some guys well, just take a little longer I'm not, and again are 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 Sandine and Lilligan going to be guys who are the same caliber of Makar Hughes and Heiskanen I don't know that jur- I think the jury's still out probably mm-hmm. pro- the probable no. is probably more on the the no side yeah. maybe but I but, think what we can still wait to see what happens with those see teams. you're guilty of see you just did it you just did it with Toronto sports media did. it's highly touted I don't I never thought those guys were highly touted I thought Heiskanen or the, the Leafs guys what the Leafs guys All right uh Never highly touted. It's just where they were drafted. First round pick, sure. But that doesn't mean, wow, it's going to be an impact. It's not like those guys were taken in the first five picks of the draft and you're like, wow, here we go. This guy's going to be an impact player right away. Look at Morgan Riley. Uh, did, did Morgan Riley really up, live up to his draft positioning? Probably not, but the old Brian Burke quote that's saying he would have taken him first overall if right. he had the first overall pick, and we all laughed at it, but in hindsight, it was the best pick out of those first four guys. Um. Lilligren and Sandine, and especially Sandine, uh, I like the offensive upside. He has no question, but there's still a lot of warts on the defensive side of the game, right? right. And if you're a Leaf fan, if you're Sheldon Keefe, if you're Kyle Dubas, if you're Brendan Shanahan, can you really trust those guys playing big-time important minutes as a pair in the playoffs? Because that's what you have to get them ready for. Well, it certainly feels like, I, I mean, Sandine... Mm, Maybe right, maybe. I, I'm again, it's very encouraging stuff. But I think there, there's still a. Lo- I guess there's a lot of there's a lot of ground to cover between a good game against the Detroit Red Wings and playing heavy minutes in the playoffs, like you said. No, no question. But uh, the the one biggest positive for that game uh, was a play Mitch Marner, and he talked about and getting that goal is such a huge relief. And obviously, uh, that was something we've been just hammering them on everybody, fans and media to finally get that goal, finally scores that goal on Saturday night. And he talked about it today that he needs to just get the joy back into playing hockey and for the love of the game and just get the puck and do what he wants with the puck and have fun on the ice out there. And I think we've seen that because he was buzzing on Saturday night. He looked electric. He looked like Mitch Marner again on Saturday night. And I think we forget about how much of this game, and it's generally in life here, it's just... Perfect example is the game of golf. A lot of us golf out there who are listening to this, when you have confidence in your swing, 
You can hit the ball how you want to hit it. Sure, we're not all pros. We'll still hit a few hook shots, but you're still confident enough that when you step up to that tee, you're going to make the golf ball go where you want it to go. And it's all about confidence. And even at the professional level with elite world-class athletes like Mitch Marner, confidence is still huge. And I think we saw that on Saturday night. When you're a guy like Mitch Marner and you lack confidence, even though you have all the talent in the world, You're not playing up to your best ability. And I think we saw that. I think it's a matter of confidence. I still think there's a residual effect from that loss to the Habs in the first round of the playoffs. And I think it's going to take a while here. They got to get on a heater to kind of shake that off and move forward into this year. But confidence has been a big thing with this group. And I think we finally saw that with Mitch Marner on Saturday night. Well, it's going to be, like you said, if it... If you want to see this the snowball keep rolling downhill, I mean, you know, tomorrow they're playing the uh, Golden Knights. On Thursday, they're playing the Lightning. And on Saturday, they're playing the Bruins. So, I yeah. mean, after, after such a long period of time last season, George, of not seeing this team play uh, another American team or a non-Canadian team, let's say, I mean, they, uh, they're they going to have three straight games against pretty decent, like decent to very good teams, I would say, that I think is going to test the, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, metal, metal seems kind of cliche to say, but certainly test how this team has uh, responded to a lackluster start and getting wins against the Blackhawks and Red Wings. Yeah, I, uh, when it comes to the Golden Knights, um, they're going to be ridiculously shorthanded. You won't see Stone. You won't see Pacioretty. Now, William Carlson has broken his foot. Uh, Alex Tuck is banged up as well. Uh, Those aren't the Golden Knights we saw lose to the playoffs to the Habs. So, yeah, it's still a test with what that team has, especially with Alex Petrangelo on the blue line and Robin Leonard in net. But that ain't the regular Vegas Golden Knights. And But you're right, uh, seeing the Bruins and the Lightning, and although there's so much PTSD when it comes to the Boston Bruins in this city, it's gonna, it's nice to see these American teams. It's nice that they're on the road. Oh, my goodness. Could you imagine another year of the Canadian division? I don't think I could have did it. Yeah. Like, I would have been tough. Well, obviously, we all had to do it and suck up and watch the games. But good Lord, playing the Vancouver Canucks nine times? No, thank you. Uh, I like that the Leafs play them once in Vancouver at 7 p.m. Eastern, which pisses everybody off in Vancouver that the game's at 4 o'clock local time because of Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Like, I like that situation. I like this potpourri of teams that the Maple Leafs are going to play. I like that the Golden Knights are coming here. I think it's exciting to see all these out-of-market games now it's fun to watch hockey again. And if you're a Maple Leaf fan, this is a good test for them this week. I, I, I talked about this on Saturday with Matt. The Tampa Bay Lightning essentially don't care about the regular season. Just get enough to get into the playoffs, and they're confident enough that you can't beat them in four games in a seven-game series. Will the Lightning finish below the Maple Leafs in the standings? Maybe. Will the Lightning be a top-three team in this division? Probably. Could the Florida Panthers win this division? Yeah, maybe. Are the Boston Bruins right there? Do you trust their goaltending? I don't really, but at least it's a test for the Maple Leafs here. And it's so refreshing when we get to talk about games against the Lightning, the Bruins, and the Golden Knights. Uh, real quick, before we break, George, uh, because just because you brought up the Panthers and, and the other teams in the Atlantic Division, this is something I was talking about before before we got you on. Uh, do, do you believe at all in the starts for Buffalo and Detroit? No, of course not. Well, you think Buffalo's not going to be staring down the gun of a 12-game losing streak soon? Like, talent wins out eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. There's not much talent on the Buffalo Sabres, but God bless Don Granato and the job he's done with Buffalo, sure. yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, They play for that guy. They Ever do. since they got hired on the end of last season, they weren't an easy out. Craig Anderson is turning back time. Trademark share. Yep. Uh, he's playing great. 
in that right now for the Buffalo Sabres, and they look good, right? They, they're just a plucky, hard team to play against. And if you're a Leaf fan, uh, the Detroit Red Wings scared the bejesus out of me moving forward, right? Because of what Steve Eiserman's capable of. Because when he took over that team in Detroit, it was a carcass, right? They were fresh off, you know, their 25 straight years in the playoffs and then being bottom feeders for a few years. Like, he's going to fix the Detroit Red Wings and eventually look at even some of the players they have. That cider kid, he's really good. Lucas Raymond, like, you see some of these pieces on the Red Wings, like, uh uh-oh, there's some potential here that is going to be good eventually as long as Steve Eiserman is at the helm. Because is there one guy that can build a team back to being a Stanley Cup contender? Look, we did it in Tampa. God bless Julian Breezebaugh, the general manager of the Lightning, but it was the old Brian Burke saying uh, he bought all the groceries and didn't eat the meal. That's what happened to Steve Eiserman on this back-to-back cup run here. He bought all the groceries, just didn't get to eat the meal. Yeah, I will. Like the Iser plan, uh, like I know we call yes. it the Shanna plan, the Iser plan in Detroit. It may have taken a couple of years, but I just, I, I'm not sure if I think they're going to finish above the Leafs this particular year, but in the co- in coming years, I, I am, uh, I'm not, lo- not looking forward to having these conversations next year or the year after. Yeah, because I, I think if there's one team in this division, you should actually, there's two. And the Ottawa Senators are up and coming, show. Sure. They got a lot of good young players on that team and everybody everybody likes to rip on the Ottawa Senators in this market with their cheapskate owner and their stupidity and their small market mentality but when you look at some of those picks they've made and how they develop young talent uh, is is Brady Kachuk one of the best young power forwards in all the NHL like what a great piece moving forward him all those young guys like Josh Norris like there's a ton of young great young players coming up for the Ottawa Senators. Foreman, there's like there's just so many of them that you're like, okay, I can see something here with the Ottawa Senators. I can see something with the Detroit Red Wings. Eventually, maybe the Buffalo Sabres figure it out, and maybe the catalyst of that will be a Jack Eichel trade where they can replenish their prospect pool and maybe have some good young players out of that team, as, as in, like, look at the Vegas Golden Knights because there's so much smoke around the Golden Knights and Sabres when it comes to a Jack Eichel trade. But this division's on the rise, and the Maple Leafs better adapt. Adapt or die. What do they say all the time, Show Adapt or die. That's what the Maple Leafs have to do in this division. Very dramatic. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, well, Luke Fox is going to join us in the next excited. break. Yeah, I'm, I, I am excited to ask Luke, and I, I do kind of want to ask Luke. I don't know if we have, we'll have time for this, but I do kind of want to. We have lots of time. We have like 25 minutes to talk to him, okay. whatever you want to ask him. I, I just want to squeeze in some, some Team Canada questions for him. because Ooh, that's sexy. Because, yeah, uh, good. No, we should. Okay, no, hold on. I know we got a break. Okay, okay. We absolutely should start talking about Team Canada. It's super fun. It's November. Yeah. Like, we're going to start talking about the actual team. This is what we're supposed to do. That's why when the NHLers in the Olympics, it's so awesome. I like Team Canada in the Olympics is something, and you and I have, have discussed not not just the idea of, of Team Canada's hockey team at the Olympics, but just all the other Winter Olympic sports that Canadians have their eyeballs on, like the various skiing, the downhill oh, yeah. skiing, the figure skating, the team skating, uh, curling, everything. Speed skating. Yeah, all that stuff, I, I adore watching it, and I lose so many hours of sleep watching, especially when, these, when the Olympics are played on the other side of the world. But you know what? I and you and nobody else really cares here in Canada because everyone will watch those. But I, I am really excited to talk talking about the Olympics simply because, I mean, you look at some of the teams around the NHL, like who is going to be the starting goaltender for Team Canada? Is it Could, oh could it be Jordan Bennington? Is Carter Hart still in that conversation? Ooh. I just, I wonder, I do wonder Mark about all of those Andre things. I can't stop a beach ball yeah. right now. Yeah. Like it's Carey Price. Carey Price, yeah. And you just hope he can find the help he needs and potentially get back 
into the net at least a few games before the Olympics? I don't. You, that's a great question because I have no idea it was going to be the starting goalie for Canada. And when you look at that roster, uh, especially up front, it's ridiculous. But the weakness could be in goal. And when you look at some of the other countries that they'd have to face off in a potential gold medal or a semifinal game, like I'd rather have Russia's goaltending with Andre Vasilevsky. I'd maybe even rather have maybe the United States. Hellebuck? With Con- Connor Hellebuck. Yeah. Like, there's some really, really good goaltenders out there, and does Team Canada have any of them? Uh, yeah. It might not matter, though, because the team is so ridiculously stacked. Great stuff to ask Luke Fox about. Yeah, we will chat with Luke coming up straight ahead. Of course, a senior NHL writer for Sportsnet.ca. And a little later on in the program, we'll uh, tee up su- our Monday, I almost said Sunday night football, Monday night football between the Giants and the uh, Chiefs. Sarah Langs will join us from MLB.com to, of course, tee up game six of the World Series as the Houston Astros stayed alive as the series now shifts back to Minute Maid Park for game six and perhaps game seven. But Luke Fox and more Leafs talk coming up straight ahead. Show and George on Sportsnet tonight across the Sportsnet radio network. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet tonight, Sportsnet 590, the fan. George Russick, show Ali here to the end of the Raptors game. About to tip off in New York against the Knicks. Raptors Reaction Podcast with William Liu follows this program. Later on, on our show, the top of the next hour, Joshua Briscoe, head of the almost entirely sports and Chiefs post game on Sports Radio 810, will join us. Tee up this Monday nighter between the Chiefs and the Giants. And then Show and I will talk about some lot of news today from the NFL. Von Miller's an LA Ram, Derrick Henry breaking the hearts of a ton of fantasy football owners out there lost to dive in for the National Football League. And we got a game six of the World Series. Sarah Langs, writer for MLB.com, will join us at 8.30. But right now, he's an NHL writer for Sportsnet.ca. We say good evening to Luke Fox. Luke, how are you, pal? I'm doing well. How are you guys? We're good. Uh, We talked about it before you jumped on here, and Mitch Marner finally getting that goal and talking about how he just wants to have fun again on the ice. Do we as fans in media forget how much confidence actually matters to these guys? Yeah, I think it's a good reminder. Um, They talk about it a lot, you know, when we interview them. But but we seemingly ignore it, right? Because we don't know how to quantify it. Yeah, you're right. You, You can't quantify it. And uh, it, it, it affects affects athletes a lot, and not just hockey, but all across the board. I mean, you need confidence to do well. And, um, you know, we're seeing two sides of the coin with it in Toronto right now. You know, Mitch Marner seems to have finally got his back. Um, and you can, you can see it just in his body language, in his facial expressions, and his play on the ice. Uh, the last two games have been a step in the positive direction. And then on the flip side, you got a guy like Justin Hall, who had kind of established himself as a top four defenseman for this team, uh, got off to a really rocky start. The puck seemed to go in uh, the Leafs net anytime he was on the ice, uh, couldn't do anything right. And now he's sitting a second game in a row tomorrow night. So um, confidence matters a whole ton of a lot. And, um, you know, athletes, as much as they like to say, we got to keep it even keel, we can't get too high or too low. It's just human nature that you ride that wave a little bit. And when you're feeling good, you play good. When you're not feeling good, it can snowball. Well, Luke, do you think, and you mentioned Justin Hall there, do you think there's a case to be made at this point that 
maybe and again maybe we maybe this changes again rapidly in the next week or two weeks or what have you but do you think there's a case to be made to maybe play someone like Travis Dermott above Justin Hall for the near future well I mean they're doing it right now um and and I think this is an opportunity right for Travis to to show that he belongs in that top four and show that he he can hang with Morgan Riley and be play those minutes. Um, they've challenged him to take up some more penalty-killing minutes because they don't see him as a power play guy. So if that's the role that the team and the coach has given you, you have to seize that. You have to stand out. Uh, you have to do the right things. And it's for Dermot in particular, what he's been given isn't really a flashy role. Um, if someone's going to be jumping up the rush and making plays on that, that pairing, it's going to be Morgan Riley. You know, he's the guy you just handed uh, a multi-million dollar extension to and committed uh, another bunch of years beyond this one too. So you just have to be a really good role player and do what the coach tells you. But if, if, you, if you do your job and when you're on the ice, the puck's not in your end, um, you know, that's going to, we talked about confidence, that's going to give the coach confidence to throw you over the boards. And, and that job seems to be up for the taking now that Justin Hall has stumbled out of the gate. Luke, isn't it funny how we think of Travis Dermott as a kid, a guy who's 24 years old and has played over 200 games in the NHL, and we still think of him as a prospect for the Leafs? It's because he, he's never really grabbed it yet, right? Like, um, I honestly thought that when Jake Gardner left town, that Dermott might have been the guy to succeed him and step into a top four role, and it never really materialized. You know, and last year was a really tricky one for him because they brought in, uh, if you guys remember, Miko Lettinen from the KHL, and they, they seemed to prioritize him over someone that they drafted and developed and spent a lot of time, you know, um, bringing up to this point. And it took him a while to even find his footing on the third pairing. Um, so, yeah, it's just... But I think you can't blame the organization. You can't blame the coach. You have to make it undeniable. You have to play so well that they can't take you out of the lineup. So I think that's the challenge for Dermot right now this season. It's funny you mentioned Miko Lettinen, Luke. The Finnish Bobby Orr. I definitely thought yeah. we'd be talking more about uh, about Lettinen uh, in the years to come, but here we are. Yeah, it almost feels it almost feels like the, that's the kind of name you'd see on like a Sporkle quiz when it comes to the that particular year of the Toronto Maple Leafs going forward. Okay, I do want to ask you. Uh, about more uh, more of these uh, defensive pairings because George and I did spend a, a large chunk of time talking about Rasmus Sandin and Timothy Liljegren. What what have you made out of the, that pairing? And I guess out of each of their each of them individually, considering you know the the fan base, I feel like has been waiting a long time to see you know relatively speaking a long time to see these guys come up and play meaningful minutes for uh, for the Leafs. I know, and you know, we talked about the idea that uh, there's a long way to go between the playoffs and you know a five four win over the uh, Detroit Red Wings. But still, I just I was genuinely encouraged by what I saw out of those two uh, this past weekend. Yeah, they look good. Like I thought Lilligren had one of his strongest game, if not his strongest game uh, at the NHL level. I, I thought he played a real strong game. Sandine, his, uh, his parents were in town for the first time uh, since he made his NHL debut, since the, the COVID restrictions lift. So they, they flew over from Sweden and they're in the stands for all five of these games during the homestand uh, and he seemed extra pumped heading into Saturday night's game I think you know he wants to make his dad proud but those guys are good buddies so they have some built-in chemistry on and off the ice they were partnered together with the Marlies and Toronto needs these guys to take a step right like if you look beyond them the the prospect pool 
for defensemen in this organization isn't too deep. So it is really important that both these guys work and work well, considering one's a lefty, one's a righty. Now, I do think Sheldon Keith kind of sheltered their minutes, gave them lots of offensive zone starts and put them in a position to succeed. But I really like Sandine, especially when the puck's on his stick. I think he makes a lot of smart plays with it. Uh, and, and I think this is, you know, this is going to be key, right? Because I don't think there's any guarantee that beyond Riley, everyone else is going to be back just because of the cap constraints. So you need guys like Sandine and Lilligren who are still cap on cap friendly, cheap entry level contracts uh, to pop for you because in the, in this world, you need some, some cheap labor as it were. And, uh, and so it's important that those guys take a step. Luke Fox, NHL writer for Sportsnet.ca, joining us here on Sportsnet tonight, Georgian Show, Sportsnet 590, the fan. How did Peter Morazic look for you in his second game as a Maple Leaf? Uh, he got the win. He got the win. Um, <laughs> it was okay. He, you know what? He needed. He got in uh, the way of some pucks, which was positive. <laughs> uh, he, uh, uh, he, he took the day off today, which, um, you know, and Jack Campbell's done that a couple days too. The, there's a, there's a concern here, right? Um, you have two goalies with an injury history that they're being very cautious about trying to manage the workload. So Mrazek, you know, there was a, a day off Sunday and then he didn't really practice too hard today because, so that shows that, that they're kind of using kid gloves as he returns from that groin injury, but Hey, it wins a win. Um, and he looked pretty good in that shiny Chrome helmet. So, Luke, what do you think? Uh, what do you think might be a good way? And I know we're going to probably talk about the power play. God knows it feels like all season. But uh, oh. what do you think might be a good way to resolve those PP one issues? Like maybe maybe move Marner up top. Like maybe shuffle some bodies around. <laughs> like I, I don't know. What do you, what do we do for about the power play? Put Austin Matthews in that front. Yeah, like, what are we going to do? <laughs> it, 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 they've tried a lot, right? Um, and. I, I just think you'd like to say it's just a matter of time. I, I think they just need to fire the puck a little bit more. Um, maybe not look for the, the prettiest play. It seems the, the second unit, and Sheldon was talking about this, maybe they play with a little more urgency because, in general, they only get 30 seconds of the power play, whereas the, the first unit gets the lion's share of the time. So they have a little bit more time to set up. The second unit only has so much time five on four. So they have to press it a little bit more. And ironically, you know, the, the unit where you spend just a fraction of your money versus the top unit, which is all your core players, your superstars, they're outscoring them at this point in the season um you, you'd like to think with all that talent it's just a matter of, of breaking through um and so you know i, I don't want to cast too harsh of a judgment uh two weeks into the season but it, it's going to be a concern until the the numbers start going on the board uh when's jason spezza get a shot on the number one unit yeah i know eh? he's uh, what what a story uh like even after um kyle signed Morgan Riley, he was asked about, you know, how, how are you going to fit in the rest of the guys? And he's like, well, Jason's negotiations are never that big of a worry. Like the guy just shows up, works for minimum wage. He acts as like a fifth coach. Uh, and he's, and he's your leading scorer. Like, uh, the, it, he's just a phenomenal story team first. And I, I think it speaks to just the, 
the stage he's at in his career, just the desperation to win a cup, that's all he's in it for. You never question what he's in it for. Uh, and um, Rod Brindamore of the Carolina Hurricanes is actually talking about him because he played against them, and, and here he is coaching against them. And he said the thing that allows Jason Spezza's to still compete in this league is his wheels. If he couldn't skate, it wouldn't matter that he still had the hockey sense in the shot. It's the fact that he's, his conditioning has allowed him uh, to keep up with the pace of this fast league. So kudos for a guy who's in his late 30s and can still keep up with the kids. Um, you, you talk about foot speed, and Justin Bourne wrote a piece on sportsent.ca last week that the Leafs just don't look as fast as they used to. And I asked Jim Ralph about this on Saturday. I want to get your opinion on that. Do they not just look as fast as they have been in previous seasons? Well, to me, I think one of the reasons they don't look as fast, I mean, look, Joe Thornton's not on the team anymore, right? I, like, I don't know if they've actually lost fast guys. Hyman was fast. But I think it's they're not, they haven't been connected. You know, watching from the sixth floor or wherever I am watching them, there's a lot of missed passes. There's a lot of lines that seem out of sync. And maybe that's because they're, it's early. Maybe it's because they're getting new, used to new line mates. Maybe in some cases, in some guys' cases, like I think Mitch early on, it's confidence. But there is a kind of a lack of passes connecting. And I think, you know, it's not just about skating fast. It's about playing fast, making decisions fast, uh, making your passes crisp and on point and taking the pass. If, you're, if your plays are constantly getting broken, you look slow. So I think that's part of it. I don't think it's solely a foot speed issue. Okay, Luke, George and I uh, discussed this in the previous segment, and I, and I always am, am always very excited to ask you and our other uh, friends at sportsnet.ca about, about the roster construction for Team Canada. We're that Let's much closer go. to the Winter Olympics, Luke. It feels like, it feels so much, you know, after the last Winter Olympics when we didn't get to see the NHL players, uh, I and I'm sure many people are very excited to see NHL players uh, suit up for their country. Um, I am curious, like, we, we already know Austin Matthews is going to be on Team USA, of course, and when it comes to Team Canada, um, it seems pretty likely that Mitch Marner is going to be he's on a lock show. Yeah, he's he's I don't, on that team. Look, okay, okay. All right, fair. Fair enough. Is is John Tavares sniffing that roster, you guys think? Well, did you see those photos that came out where he's modeling the... Um, I did, I did the, see that. <laughs> Uh, I think he's a bubble guy, to be honest. I know, I know it really matters to him. And uh, we asked a, a few of the, the Leafs who would be in contention for their respective Olympic teams and a lot at the beginning of the season. And a lot of them said, you know, oh, if it happens, it happens. Or my focus is on the Leafs. John went out of his way to say, I want this. I want it badly. I want to be on that Olympic team. Because he realizes for, you know, in 20, uh, 2026, He's going to be tooled by then. He knows this is his last chance. The poor guy does have a gold medal, but did not play in the semifinal or the final due to injury in Sochi. So this is his last chance to, to really be part of it and make a deep run. Uh, I love the fact that he has responded pretty well here. He had the three-point night Saturday, but I see him on the bubble. Um, when you look at all the forwards, uh, we, t- we were talking about speed, all the fast forwards, um, all the young forwards. It- it's going to be tough for him to make it. So um, I-, I think he's on a tryout. You know, he's on the long list. Um, he's got the gear. He's just got to prove it because it's not going to be easy to-, to make the top 12. Yeah, right. I mean, you think about guys like Braden Point and, 
I guess Jonathan Uberdo will probably be there. Uh, Stamkos, Prashifley, Barzal, right? Like there's so many guys that uh, Tavares will be, you know, in, in in essence competing with. Um, I do I do have to ask you about the goaltending situation. I know it's not going to come from the Toronto Maple Leafs, but uh, Jordan Binnington is is the the Blues' hot start. Does that play at all a factor? You think into Binnington being the guy? I'm just curious. Like, is is it going to be Binnington? Could it be Carter Hart? Could it be Mark Andre Fleury? I'm just curious as to who you think the starting goaltender for Team Canada at the Winter Olympics could be. Yeah, I, right now I'd probably be leaning towards Bennington or Darcy Kemper. Um, Kemper won the, the gold medal for Team Canada at the World Championships, um, and that was a roster that they sent over there last spring that, that wasn't exactly stacked, you know? Like, Connor Brown was a hero there. Um, Mangiapane was. Like, it wasn't Canada's best the best because the best players were competing for the Stanley Cup. But Darcy Kemper had a heck of a, a run for Team Canada, and that if you're willing to go to the world championships and you perform well at the world championships, that serves you well. I think Jordan Bennington really has been a pretty average goalie before this season started and after his, his cup in 26, uh, sorry, 2019. But the fact that Doug Armstrong knows this guy well and has witnessed firsthand his performance in big games, I think helps him. But I think there no clear number one has established himself. I think they're going to sit and wait and see how the next couple months play out. I think it, it's a tough competition. I know they, I, I have it on good authority that they were going to go back with Carey Price, but he's a big question mark right now. And they've still left him on the long list, so he's an option if he does come back from the player assistance program. Um, but if Price isn't available, um, I would I would tend the bet that it's Bennington or Kemper. Luke, who's the one player that maybe is a super dark horse that maybe the average fan would be surprised to say that they're in the mix for Team Canada? Uh, Zach Hyman. Oh I've my heard, God. Heard, wow. Yep. No, no. I've heard from uh, someone involved that uh, that he could be the, the Chris Kunitz of this class. You know, if, if Connor McDavid uh, loves playing with this guy this much. Oh my God! Uh, he he could be a dark. I'm saying dark horse. You're looking okay, for a yeah, deep Okay, yeah, but reach. still, that's shocking. You're looking for a deep it's reach. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Like Matt Barzell isn't a. Is I wouldn't call him a dark horse, no. right? Like he's a good player. Braden, Braden Point, I wouldn't call dark horse. So the, I'm I'm reaching a bit deeper, but yeah. Ooh. I'm, I'm not wow. I'm not saying he's making it, but I'm saying he might. You know, a dark horse in contention. He might be the Chris Kunitz. I think that's a great example because they had yeah. to bring Sid's buddy, Chris Kunitz, in 14 to win a gold medal just to be a passenger uh, on that Team Canada team. Scored that one big goal, I remember. When was it? Semi-quarterfinals? I don't know. It was, <laughs> a, long time. It was a long time ago, Luke. But this hey, is the fun. team won. The team won. Yeah, that's yeah the team won. Are they, and it was, and uh, I got to say, uh, Mike Babcock just choked the life out of all the Olympic hockey because <laughs> the team was – they were so dominant that you couldn't even score on them. Like, it was great that they won, but that was some boring hockey, was it not? It was. It was. Uh, yeah. 2010, 2010 was a blast. 2014 was... Oh, two was, was incredible. Boring, boring, yeah, boring, boring hockey. I, I agree. I agree, but, oh, you know. But they're going, right? What? The, the NHLers? The Olympic. They're for sure, right? Unless there's some sort of... Uh, I mean, they have a provision saying that if there's some sort of COVID outbreak that disrupts the NHL schedule uh, to a you know a breaking point. They have the right to to pull back, but right now they're going. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Luke Fox, writer yeah. for Sportsnet.ca. Luke, thanks for this, pal. See you, man. Okay. Ha- have a good night, guys. Thanks. 
How would your reaction be oh, being man. a Leaf fan if Zach Hyman was on Team Canada? What's your reaction, show? That like honestly, your the reaction you had, I would I would be stunned looking at that roster because you know the the conversation around Team Canada is as much of who didn't get picked as to who yes. did get picked, right? So if if uh, if Zach Hyman is going and someone like Barzell didn't go or someone like Tavares didn't go or someone like Stamkos didn't go, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here, right? But if some if those guys don't go and Hyman does, boys, I feel like I feel like Edmonton fans would be very pleased, but I feel like Leafs fans would feel a little I don't know, scorned is the right word, but Ooh, still still feel bitter. like yeah, bitter maybe maybe the better word. Yeah, bitter. I think they would be bitter. Uh, Raptors trailing right now in New York to the Knicks. It's Sportsnet tonight, George, and show. We're on to the end of the Raptors, and then William Liu will take over with some Raptors reaction podcast. But straight ahead, we'll tee up the Monday Nighter from Kansas City with Joshua Briscoe. It's Sportsnet tonight, George, and show. Sportsnet 590, the fan. When the sun goes down, <laughs> we up the ante. This is Sportsnet Tonight on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet Tonight. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. George Russick, Show Ali. Later on this hour, Sarah Langs, writer for MLB.com, talk about the World Series, which shifts back to Houston for Game 6 tomorrow night. We'll have it for you here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan, and we'll talk some more pucks with David Pagnotta, editor-in-chief of the fourth period. But right now, to tee up the Monday Nighter from Kansas City, Joshua Briscoe is the host of Almost Entirely Sports and the Chiefs post game on Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City joins us. Joshua, thanks for this. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm just unpacking my bag right now in the studio at the radio station. I got the TVs ready to go. Okay. Not going to watch the Manning cast tonight, though, which does bum me out a little bit. But I had to make a yeah. call. It is a little disappointing that essentially, uh, if you think you're Steve Levy and the crew on Monday Night Football, <laughs> you think you're a little jealous of the Manning cast? You have to be. You absolutely right. have to be. And like, I really like Lewis Riddick. And also tonight, he'll be great because he's got good Chiefs connections and stuff, too. But, yeah, right now, if you're if you're Steve Levy, you have to think, you know what, I really kind of thought I was getting the big mic with this job, and now a couple of dudes in Zoom, uh, in Zoom studios, basically, are taking all the shine. I think they have to be a little bit. Yeah, it kind of sucks for them, but the Manning cast is unreal to watch, and not bad guests as well tonight on the Manning cast as well. Um, what's, what's, the, what's the panic level in Chiefs Kingdom right now, Joshua? Um, right now, I would say it is a six and a half, maybe a seven. Let's say seven, okay. based on where they started before 10, this season. Out of ten, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yes, correct. And if you if you call me back in three and a half hours and they lose this game tonight, it's going to be a 15 out of ten, which I know is not playing the game, but that's just where it's going to be. Yeah, it's fair. I, I, that is fair because I, you know, the losing to the Giants would be, I think, you know, time to press the panic button. I think, but hey, if there ever was a, a get-right game, Josh, I, I do feel like this this may be it. But you know, I, I do wonder when it comes to the offense, they they have scored. I, I was curious to look up the the statistics over year over year on this, and I was actually kind of surprised they have scored touchdowns on just over thirty four percent of their drives which I guess coming into uh, this week was second to only to the Buccaneers and is actually better than the Chiefs themselves in 2019 and 2020, which yeah. is around 30%. So how, how much can we really blame the offense, really, uh, considering it hasn't been that far off from years past? 
It's so interesting, and I'm glad that you you found all of that because that's been a lot of the conversations I've been having with people about the offense. Like the offense isn't really broken in the ways that you might consider an offense to eventually break down if you saw results like you've seen. But the other side of that coin is that they've turned the ball over so much. Like they are in a class by themselves in terms of turning the ball over and in terms of things like win percentage and expected points added lost to turnovers. I think the Patriots are still second best on that or second worst, I guess. The, the Chiefs, if you find that chart on, on EPA loss and win percentage loss just purely from turnovers, the Chiefs aren't even in the Patriots' orbit. Like they're in a class by themselves even beyond 31st place. So it, it, the turnovers have been a real problem, but the worst unit is certainly the defense. Um, there's this term that's been thrown around a lot lately this season when the Chiefs, when it comes to Patrick Mahomes' hero ball, and that he's making decisions mm-hmm. that he hasn't made in his career so far, and he's made a lot of uh, throws that maybe he shouldn't have. Is that the sense in Kansas City because the defense has been so bad that he's just trying to do too much? Yeah, yeah, and he actually copped to that a little bit after the Titans game directly and said, like, you know, maybe I've been pressing a little bit. Where I do think mentioned, you know, people referencing trying to score 14-point plays when obviously, you know, you got to do it six or seven or I guess maybe eight at a time. And so I, I think there's something to that, and, and the Titans game is the worst game I've seen Patrick Mahomes play uh, in the NFL at any point. It's not, I'm not sure it's particularly close because he just didn't play very well, which even in some of their losses, he's still been largely Patrick Mahomes. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really interested to see what the next few weeks look like and especially what tonight looks like for him because he is coming off of such a terrible, uh, terrible outing, not even just by his standards, but by just like NFL quarterback standards. And this offense has to be excellent for this team to continue to win football games. Well, and, the, and of course, we, we have to talk about the defense, Joshua. And, and you know, you, you, you look at the, 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 the way that they haven't been able to get off the field has essentially limited, mm-hmm. as good as the offense have been, has limited the amount of times the offense can get the ball, essentially, right? I think it essentially adds up to something like a, a, a minus five points or five and a half points a game that the Chiefs have been scoring because they just don't have the ball as much as they did in years past. So you look at the defense, and I don't know, where do you want to start first? Which has struggled more, the pass oh. defense, the run defense, the pass rush? Where do you want to go? that <laughs> i think the most important thing to start with is the pass rush because that's what was the, that, that was the, the the most expensive unit and this is the second most expensive defense in the nfl by the way by salary cap hits this year which is not where you want to be uh whenever you're having this con- kind of conversation around them but with the pass rush you have frank clark who is a hundred million dollar contract and who has not fully lived up to that by pretty much any standard. He started this year dealing with hamstring injuries. Maybe you see him finally fully healthy tonight. I think there's a chance of that. Uh, but then they moved Chris Jones, the dominant defensive tackle, out to defensive end this year. He actually played more tackle than in spot, uh, snaps last week for the first time this season. And, and that is definitely where he is at his best. But the, the defensive line depth isn't great. It's very limited. And most importantly, the stars who are making all the money just have not been as productive as they've been in years past. And that, I think, has made every other issue, while they're legitimate on their own, I think if the pass rush lived up to expectations and to their, their, their pay stub, if you will, every other issue would be lessened because of the pass rush being what they expected, if that makes sense. Joshua, is Steve Spagnuolo's job in jeopardy in any way? Um, I think a lot of people, just Chiefs fans in general, if you ask them, they would say yes, and they would say that they hope so. Um, I think there is virtually 0% chance that he gets fired in season this year. And again, most of it is stuff like you can expand back to coverage. Watch in the flat tonight. 
watch the middle of the field. The linebackers in coverage have been a disaster. And, and again, things like that, that's not, a, that's not a schematic issue from Spagnuolo. It's that the talent that's there isn't accomplishing what they're being asked to do. Now, you could also say, can the, the, the coordinator help cover up some of those weaknesses by putting them in different positions, using different personnel groups and stuff. And I think some of that is fair. So short question, long answer, I guess. But I would say that if nothing looks better at this point uh, at the end of the season, if it looks like it does right now at the end of the year, then I think his job could be in jeopardy. Uh, But the last time the Chiefs should have fired a defensive coordinator was Bob Sutton, and they fired him one year later than they should have. It ended up costing them. I wonder if Andy Reid might be a little less patient at this point, but I definitely think Spags will be here through the end of the year, uh, and giving been, be, he'll be given the chance to kind of help right this ship, although some of it, again, is personnel stuff that's not really on his hands. Uh, before I let you go, uh, Josh, had this take on this radio station. want to get your thoughts on it. Are the Las Vegas Raiders the most, and it's crazy to say, complete team in the AFC West? It's really interesting because if you would have asked that, you know, two or three weeks ago, I think you could make an argument that they would be third because the the Chargers roster everyone loves in the summer and then it usually uh, flames out. Obviously, Justin Herbert changes the game there. Um, And so at this point, like, maybe, I think it's as far as I'm willing to go right now there. You know, I don't know how big of a Mario fan you are, how many Mario sports games your listeners have played, but, like, Mario in every Mario sports game is the Raiders where he's pretty good at everything, but there's not one particular skill set that, like, like puts him above the rest. I'm a big Yoshi guy. Yoshi's always got the speed in every single iteration of Mario sports games. That's what the Chiefs have, not speed on defense, but, you know, Patrick Mahomes. So I'll say, I'll up that take and say the Raiders are Mario, and you can decide what that means to you. Who's who's Wario and Waluigi? I have to know now, Joshua. Oh, in just in the AFC West or in the entire NFL? Let's let's say the NFL. Who's the Waluigi and Wario of the NFL? I think I think they're Tampa and New England. I think you've separated <laughs> Belichick and Tom Brady. I think Waluigi's a little more wily. He's right. a veteran now, surrounded by more talent. Bill Belichick and Wario and the Patriots. I, I just think that's got to be it. I, I'd love to give that some more thought, but I'm pretty confident in my knee-jerk answer, too. I like it. Uh, I love it. Uh, Joshua Briscoe, host of the Almost Entirely Sports and Chiefs post game on Sports Radio 810 in Kansas City. Joshua, thanks for this. Enjoy the game. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Anytime. Yeah, this is a big game for the Chiefs tonight show um if they lose this game oh boy uh they're already hard pressed in my opinion to make the playoffs based on that defense but now when you kind of look at the AFC as a whole after this week like how many great teams are in the AFC like the Titans just suffered an enormous loss with Derrick Henry but I never considered the Titans a great team to begin with based on that wonky defense sure like even yesterday, they coughed up 31 points and somehow managed to win after being down 14 to nothing. The Chiefs' defense is flat out awful. It's awful. They can't stop anybody. The Bills, okay, uh, AFC Championship game. They've had some clunkers this season as well. I think they're the best team in the AFC. In fact, I think they are the best team in the AFC. But after that, like, is it Baltimore? They can't stop anybody either. Their defense sucks. The Chargers, I know we're a bit of a mirage since the beginning because they can't stop the run. Like, wh- wh- what's your power rankings in the AFC? Because I can't really figure it out because the power conference, once again, is the NFC, and it's not even close. Yeah, it's a, it's it, the the NFC is quite top-heavy, right? I mean, like, or may, I don't even know if it's top-heavy. It's just good from 
team number one right down to any other team that might make the playoffs, basically. The right? Lions but, can beat the Jags. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. No, you're probably right. But uh, the, the Buffalo Bills certainly are at the top. That I, I 100% agree with. They they just they look like the most complete team. The defense is, is good. I mean, they've also been, at least so far, you know, you knock on wood, but they've been very healthy, too. They haven't managed to, they've managed to avoid any major injuries. I think Matt Milano had a hamstring strain that he dealt with, and he was back recently anyway. So I, he, they had the bye week for him to rest up. So it'll be interesting to see it the Bills, how they manage the rest of the season, because attrition always seems to set in for for basically every team in every sport. But the Bills are at the top. I think I would, I, I don't know if it's this crazy to say, George, but I almost feel like I'd put the Bengals at number two. I don't know if they're a mirage either. Even with that loss yesterday? You know what? I, I know it was that was, I think, some some wacky stuff happens in the NFL. I know that the Jets are truly one of the, if not the worst team in the NFL. Uh, I totally get that. But they're not. I, they're I, not the worst team. They, they, beat the, they beat the Bengals and the Titans this year. That's also that's very true. Okay, maybe they're not the worst team, but they're still one of, what, like the, the Texans. Bo- bottom 10 oh worst teams, maybe? Bottom seven worst teams? Yeah. But either way, I do. I still, even with that embarrassing loss, I think I would still put. It would probably go the Bengals, Ravens, and then you know what, probably the Raiders, and in that next tier. I, I don't think that any of them are in the same conversation as the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, because I feel like uh, the AFC is wide open this year, right? Because the Chiefs aren't the Chiefs, and I'm sure they will eventually figure it out. But I think they're going to be hard pressed to make the playoffs. But then, do I trust the Raiders to win that division? Probably not. Do I trust the Chargers? No, I don't trust the Chargers. And the Broncos are starting their fire sale with the trade of Von Miller today. So can the Chiefs potentially win that division still? Yeah. Is it going to be tough with that defense? Yeah. And it's just that conference heading into the season, we thought all the best teams resided in the AFC with the Bills and the Chiefs. It's just, it's Buffalo and then the rest. If the Bills would have beat the Titans and kind of shut them down a little bit, I would have said, okay, yeah, I think it's the Bills running away, and I still think it is the Bills because if they get home field, good luck trying to win a playoff game in January in Buffalo in that stadium with that quarterback. Good luck trying to do that, and that defense looks good. It's just the Bills have been a little little sloppy this season. They've looked great, and they've kicked a hole into the teams they're supposed to kick a hole into, which is that's always the mark of a good team. But a couple of those losses I don't like. The season over to Pittsburgh, I think you can throw away. But that Monday nighter was a revenge spot, and they talked about it all off season. how that Tuesday night game because of COVID in Tennessee where yeah. they got their asses kicked by the Titans. Really, they were really prepped for that game, and then they lost it. That, that one kind of still sticks out to me as a big loss. Sure, they went into Kansas City and beat the Chiefs, and all of a sudden, that win doesn't look as impressive because the Chiefs can't stop anybody on defense. But yeah, I think it's the Buffalo Bills. And we look at the NFC. Good Lord, that trade came out of nowhere today. Von Miller from the Broncos to the Rams for a second and a third round pick. Apparently, the Rams don't need to be, uh, the Rams don't even have to show up at the draft next season. I think they only have one, two picks in the entire draft this year coming up, which is unbelievable for an NFL team with how much they covet draft picks are the Rams now your favorites in the NFC based on that defense and how Matthew Stafford has looked this season yeah it's got to be the Rams it's, it's either it's if, if it's not the Rams it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, the Buccaneers just lost to the Saints on the road uh, so I I you know what I I still think the Bucks will pull it together they have a lot of a lot of injuries in the secondary guys seem to be getting healthier and their buy is coming up in week 10 I believe as well so uh, or maybe it's maybe it's this coming week either way they're but they're biased soon for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers um, but I, I do think it's the Los Angeles Rams because yeah Matthew Stafford the 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 the, uh, the Los Angeles Rams 
times, George, have done more to get Matthew Stafford to a playoff berth than the Lions did in, what, a decade plus of him playing there? Like, in one day, maybe even. Like, my goodness. That that was, a like you said, it came out of absolutely nowhere. Um, they essentially, I guess they essentially, because I think that there was some news, too, that the Broncos are paying, like, $9 million of, of Von Miller's $9.7 million salary this year. So they essentially traded Von Miller and paid $9 million the the uh, the Broncos did for a second round pick and a third round. They essentially bought two picks for nine million dollars, right? So, I guess that's not a that's not a terrible pick. I mean, it's too bad we'll never see Von Miller play next to I think is it's Bradley Chubb, who's another defensive end for the for the yeah. Broncos as well. It's too bad we'll never see that that tandem really get off the ground because I think that was kind of the the idea when when John Elway drafted Chubb a couple of years ago. But at the same time, I I gotta say the Rams defense as presently constructed, I love it. And uh, like you said, no, not a lot of draft picks for the Rams. I guess look, you can't you can't be fired for poor drafting if you never have any draft picks to make, right? Yes. That's right, I guess. Like, you can't be. And if that team goes where it wants to go, those picks will be at the end of each one of those rounds, yeah. right? Like, they, the, the Lions own their first-round pick. Well, if the Rams win the Super Bowl, that's 32nd. Okay, good for you, Detroit. Uh, you're picking 32nd in the first round. That's great. But when you just look at the talent they have on defense, my goodness, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, and Von Miller. You're talking about three guys who are – well, I know Aaron Donald and Von Miller are slam dunks to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I'm sure Jalen Ramsey is working towards it as well. But you're talking about three Hall of Fame players, potentially all in their primes. Although Von Miller is starting to get into the back nine of his career, he's still one of the most feared linebackers and pass rushers in all of the National Football League. And you pair him with Aaron Donald, it's like, who do you double team now on that team? Good Lord. Yeah, I mean, like, you, there's no way... That, I mean, there are. Let me maybe turn this this around. I guess in in Denver, you could easily, or at least with all the injuries they had suffered, right, with that defensive unit for for Vic Fangio, supposed, supposedly going to be one of the best units in the NFL, and they kind of underwhelmed. You could you could if you had to phase Vaughn out of the game because he was their scariest player who was healthy, and now he's paired with guys like you mentioned. Aaron Donald and company. I mean, there's no way you can single or double team all of those guys on defense. So that is that is a uh, something I'm really interested to watch. It's it's funny, right? Because just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the I, I forget if it was maybe it was about a month ago at this point, George. But the the Cardinals just un, like annihilated the Rams. It felt like right, and and yeah. things, things seem to have changed a little bit for the Cardinals, right? I think you and I had the had the conversation as to whether or not their their undefeated start would be sustainable, and of course. You know they were never going to go 16 and 0 or 17 and 0. I guess now they were never going to go undefeated. But I mean, they they look a little more mortal recently. They've been suffering some injuries. Certainly, DeAndre Hopkins yeah. with the hamstring and so on. I just I guess now they're both seven and one, the Rams and Cardinals. And I'm intrigued to see how. So I think the Seahawks are out of it and the 49ers are out of it. So I'm just intrigued to see how the uh, how the Rams do when it comes to their competing with the Cardinals the rest of the year. Yeah, it'd be interesting because obviously it's all in the health of Kyler Murray too, yeah, right? Yeah. If Kyler Murray continues uh, to be healthy. And again, you saw how banged up he was. And it's funny how narratives change. If A.J. Green gets the hand signal from Kyler Murray, he's going to turn around and catch that ball for a touchdown and they're going to win that game and go to 8-0. Like that ball was thrown in the perfect spot where only A.J. Green was going to catch it. But he didn't get the signal. They get the interception. Packers and Cardinals both with just one loss of the season. And, man, that NFC. And do I think the Rams ultimately will win that division? I think so because I think the injuries on the Cardinals, especially losing out on 
Uh, J.J. Watt, who potentially is out for the season with a shoulder injury, that's a big loss, and getting Chandler Jones back is big. If DeAndre Hopkins can get healthy and Kyler Murray can stay healthy, I think the Cardinals are right there in the conversation in the NFC. But we haven't even talked about the Packers either, right? I'm still... I'm still not sold on that defense. Can they make enough stops to potentially win the Super Bowl? But that team looks unstoppable right now, too. They go into Arizona completely depleted and shorthanded, missing Bakhtiari, who hasn't played this season, missing their best corner, Jair Alexander, missing the league's best receiver in Devontae Adams. Oh, and two other guys, they're missing their one, two, and three receivers in Arizona, and they end up winning that football game. That was an enormous win for the Green Bay Packers. You look at the Buccaneers. Yeah, they lost this week against the Saints, but that's kind of their crypto tonight they're going to be playing home playoff games and they have the most explosive offense in football there's another elite team like it's just loaded on the nfc side and that number one buy is going to be so critical to which team has the inside track to get to the super bowl it's going to be super fascinating all right i have to ask you Mm -hmm. when did you find out about the earth-shattering derrick henry news i i I guess i found out maybe a couple hours after it happened. I, I'm a late sleeper, George, so I did not me see too. it as it happened right away. Yeah, me too. I uh, I woke up, and then I saw the Adam Schefter tweet, and I was like, good Lord. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a Derrick Henry owner okay. in one of my leagues. Right. I have t- I'm in two leagues that I care about a lot, and my one team that I have Derrick Henry, and nobody cares about your fantasy football no. team, especially yes. listeners, but this is just Derrick Henry. And I was so worried about Derrick Henry because this is, this is what a savage I am. I watch football now on Sundays. I have four TVs going at once on Sunday. I like it. Four TVs at once. So even in the 4 o'clock window, I'm watching every game simultaneously because that's that's what I'm doing But here. one has to be on red zone, though. Before, at 1 o'clock. Four, yeah, before 4 o'clock, of course. That's right. So one's on red zone the entire time. But otherwise, I am watching every game as it's happening right now, especially in the 1 o'clock window. When it comes to Derrick Henry, when he had his shoe off, right away I was like, good God, please don't be like a Liz Frank type injury with your foot and a broken bone in your foot. And ultimately that would have turned out to be him. Like, come on. And I even went online and watched Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc, right. explain to what is wrong with Derrick Henry's foot and how the blood flow gets cut off to the outside of his right foot and how it needs surgery. And this happens to athletes who cut a lot and that part of your foot is weak. And it happens, especially you guys with Derrick Henry's size and speed, that it'll take him a little longer than a wide receiver because he uses his ability to cut and his size so much. I'm like, good Lord. And I'm like, okay, so he's done for the season. So if you're a Derrick Henry owner show, you're the you're the co-host of the fantasy show, what do you do? Do you blow your fab budget right now getting Adrian Peterson? How much how much how much does Adrian Peterson have left behind that? Tennessee Titans because I think the Titans are going to be a little exposed here to say their run game really it, it their offensive line is good it's just a hell of a lot better when you have Derrick Henry running behind it yeah you know at AP at this stage of his career I, I had seen I think it was when he was with Washington a couple of years ago I think it was 2018 or 20 I think it was 2018 and uh, the NFL on CBS Twitter account posted a link I guess from the Washington like you know their social media team and it was him running for a 90 yard touchdown and the caption was, see, for any of you who doubt that AP still still can blow off, blow out explosive plays, here's a here's a 90-yard touchdown run. And all you think of was, that was three years ago. Like, three yeah. years ago for a running back, I don't, I don't know, it's like dog years, right? They like, you yeah. should, it's, it's, it's like times five or whatever, whatever the equation is. I don't, and even, even in that 90-yard touchdown run clip from Washington, he, it looked like he was running in slow motion. Like, it looked like he was going to, like, you know, run out of breath by the time he got to midfield. So, I don't know, I just... 
I, I think it'll, it's worth, if you're a fantasy owner, I think, spending a little bit. But I don't think you should be, you know, you know breaking the bank, let's say, pardon me, uh, to get uh, to get AP on your fantasy squad. Jerry Mc, Jeremy McNichols is a guy who is uh, in this offense already, who maybe, you know, from a fantasy perspective, might be someone worth picking up as well. But I almost, I unfortunately feel like we, even though they are still going to run the ball, I almost feel like it might be a, a, the dreaded for fantasy uh, running back by committee. Oh, boy. And I don't, if you're a Derrick Henry owner, don't get your hopes up that he's going to be back in time for the, for the fantasy playoffs. Yeah. Cause I don't think he is like, I don't know, but the, the quickest recovery time apparently is four weeks. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, if you're a Derrick Henry, if you're in a keeper league, do you potentially explore trading Derrick Henry? Cause he hasn't dealt with issues so far in his NFL career. Is this the beginning of the end now? Cause we know with running backs, things go south fast. Would it be smart if you're a Derrick Henry owner to potentially trade him now? Because you're, we worried about that foot now moving forward. I think it. I think it depends on what the keeper value is on him, right? Because I think it, like if it, if you're if the value is like to keep him would be a I don't know like a a first round pick or a second round pick or something like really something really expensive. Then yeah, I think you do it, right? I think you do it and you get another draft pick back or you get more dollars in your auction draft or something like that. Um, because like you said, he's not going to be back next year or he's not going to be back until next year. So I think that's the that's the deal I, I, the, that you do. If if he is still relatively cheap, like if you have had him in a dynasty league and you got him like really really early on, like as a rookie, let's say, then maybe you keep him. But I mean, this is it, I, correct me if I'm wrong, George. This is Derrick Henry's first really major injury, I would say, right? Like he's gotten dinged up a little bit, but I, w- I want to say compared to other top options like Alvin Kamara over the years or CMC certainly or any of those guys who've been drafted at the top of the first round, I feel like this is the first really major injury for Derrick Henry. So, I mean, if he is... If things are okay for him by the time the the regular season ends, then it may, it, you know, he's still probably going to be in contention for number one overall pick status next year. Yeah, I, I think so too. But I, I just, I would be worried, right? Because look at look at like other big time running backs lately that all of a sudden you're like, look at look at Todd Gurley. Sure, Todd Gurley yeah. was a consensus number one pick how many years ago? Not that far long, not that long ago. Show and he's fallen off the face of the earth. Like, is, he, is he even on a team right now? I don't think so. Yeah, no. Like, Todd Gurley was, what, the number one player in fantasy, what, three years ago? Yeah, I think so. Gone. Done. Like, you're right. Like, it's just the expiration date on running backs. How confident are you in Christian McCaffrey that he can stay healthy enough anymore? Like, he's turning into a bit. Saquon Barkley. Yeah, he's like, a good example, I, too. I, I, think, I think the most valuable, and this is, this is a hot take to me, but I think the most valuable running back now, dynasty-wise, and if you have on your team, is Jonathan Taylor. Agree or disagree? Ooh, that's a good one. It's if it's not Jonathan Taylor, it's Austin Eckler. But it's it's those are probably just because but of, Austin Eckler has in, in, he, he injury has, issues. Yeah, he's right? had the, the hamstring stuff, and he's been. I think he's had some back issues too. So yeah, I mean, age wise, dynasty, yeah, it probably is Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, I think it is. Maybe, Jonathan maybe even I don't know if you want to like you know roll the dice on someone like J.K. Dobbins or certainly not Cam Akers. I think at this stage, you know, the Achilles tears are so much worse than oh, just yeah. a, a straight ACL sure. tear, right? So maybe J.K. Dobbins or maybe DeAndre Swift as well. But the the overall the overall health, I guess, of the team yeah. that the, that is the Colts, I guess, would would make it Taylor. Yeah, even um, even somebody like uh, Nick Chubb, right? He's not going anywhere. No. He's, he's the linchpin, but again, he's dealt with injuries so far in his young career. Missed games last season, missed games this season as well. It's just a good, it's a good situation in Cleveland. 
to run the football. All right. Uh, game. We have a game six in the World Series after last night's crazy game in Atlanta to talk about that. And to kind of look ahead in the Blue Jays offseason, because we're almost there. This is the week where we're going to finally start looking ahead to what the Blue Jays potentially are going to do. Sarah Langs is an MLB writer. She's a writer for MLB.com. She'll join us as well. And we'll talk to David Pagnotta, editor-in-chief of the fourth period at 9 o'clock. It's Sportsnet tonight. That's show. I'm George. Sportsnet 590, the fan. Sportsnet 590. Sportsnet tonight, Sportsnet 590, the fan, George Russick, show Ali. It's top of the next hour, we'll talk some pucks. The editor-in-chief of the fourth period, David Pagnotta. Before we give way to Raptors Reaction Podcast with William Liu. Raptors in New York right now taking on the Knicks. But first, we got a Game 6 of the World Series that goes down from Houston tonight to tee that up. She's a writer for MLB.com. We say good evening to Sarah Lang. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for jumping on. Sarah, how tough, of it, how tough is it for some fans to be cheering for Dusty Baker to win a world championship? But that would mean the Houston Astros would win a world championship. You know, I I certainly can't speak for uh, that segment of the baseball fan base, but it's definitely an interesting, you know, situation. We know that there are a lot of fans who harbor some dislike towards the Astros, but I can't think of an individual in baseball that the average baseball fan, especially one with an understanding of just recent baseball history, would be rooting for more than Dusty Baker. So, Instead of seeing it as, a, you know, which is the evil versus the good, I, I see it more as, you know, <laughs> it, it gives the Astros really something that is redeeming and exciting. And, you know, I, I was talking before the series, I mean, I thought that the two managers were some of the most exciting storylines entering this World Series, and that's not always true. I mean, you have two baseball lifers in Dusty Baker and Brian Snicker, and I would love to see either of them get a ring. And, I mean, no disrespect to other managers, but it's not always the first thing on your mind entering a World Series. Right. Um, with, with so many pieces left over from the 2017 Houston Astros, if they win this championship and storm back down 3-1, does that legitimize at least a little bit what they did in 17? You know, I I know that that's a popular kind of, uh, you know, line of conversation. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking that way. But, again, I, I just view this as such a distinct team. You mentioned that there are a lot of players left, and that is true. But when you think of the core of this team, I mean, you guys like Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker, Frember Valdez, Luis Garcia, who's going on short rest in game six tomorrow. So I think this team has done a really good job of kind of separating itself from that squad, not intentionally. So, I mean, it's thanks to free agency, which got you guys towards Springer and all of that. But I do think that there, there are some distinct differences between those teams. So I'm sure overall in the history books, people will look to it and say, hey, they did this, maybe that shows that they were still very good in 2017. But regardless of what happened behind the scenes in 2017, that was an incredibly talented ball club. So if anything, this just shows the sort of mini dynasty. You know, we don't really get dynasties anymore in baseball because nobody has repeated in a really long time. But I think that teams like this making the ALCS five straight years are about as close as we come. 
Well, Sarah, you mentioned the the five straight years uh, for that for the Astros and the LCS. I just I wonder, like, how have the Astros gotten away with continually coming back and coming back? Right. I mean, we'll we'll see. I guess tomorrow and perhaps later this week if they can do it again. But they have managed to at least force a game seven in a whole ton of their appearances in the ALCS or the World Series itself, dating back to 2017. I guess my question to you is, how valuable do you think that experience is? for the guys on this roster, considering they are so, I guess, battle-tested in the playoffs? I think it's really important. I mean, it comes down to one of those things that we can't really quantify. I could tell you how many games they've each played and everything else, but we know it's a lot. But when Carlos Correa was being interviewed after the game last night and he was talking on the field with the Fox guys and saying, hey, I know a lot of teams have not come back from down 3-1, but some teams have, and why not us? Somehow I believe him more than a team or a player that hasn't really been there all that much. I mean, because as you said, they've been in this situation. I mean, they almost pulled off a 3-0 comeback in the ALCS last year in the season where they weren't even that good. I mean, it was a COVID season. There were a lot of atypical parts of that year. But, you know, I think we forget that they almost did that. They almost became the second team to do that in baseball history. So I really do think that that plays a role. And, you know, I think Dusty Baker – is a perfect man to be leading them in this way as well because he's been in these situations. We know what happened that 2002 World Series and keeps coming up on the opposite end because a lot of the uh, games that the Braves have sort of blown here are akin to what the Giants did in 2002. Now Dusty's on the other side, but I think he's the type of manager who just never loses his cool and is never going to act like the ship is sinking. And I, I think it's just a perfect combination with these guys who have been in October every single year for a really long time now. Yeah, that's a good point because you look at Dusty Baker. He's never, I don't think I've ever really seen Dusty get like super emotional. You know what I mean? Like in terms of being a rah-rah, yelling at guys in the dugout or on the field or what have you. He's never, I don't think he's really ever been that kind of manager, but it does kind of feel like the, the kind of calm he exudes at all times, even with his kind of the dry kind of witty remarks he makes at the media availabilities before and after every game. That's the kind of thing that I think I'm sure a, a veteran club like the uh, Houston Astros um, do appreciate. I, I do want to ask you um, on Dusty Baker, do you think, because I've gotten a lot of different answers on this over the course of, I guess, the entirety of the playoffs so far, Sarah, but do you think he needs a ring to be a Hall of Famer, or do you think regardless of what happens in, the, in this World Series tomorrow or potentially Game 7, he's a, he's a Hall of Famer in Cooperstown regardless? I like how you worded that because I completely agree with I think what you're implying there. I don't think he needs the ring at all. Right. I mean, I think the fact that they're beginning to orchestrate a comeback here, the fact that they even made it to this World Series, the fact that he's now the ninth manager to win a pennant in both leagues, all of that really helps him, but If you ask me before the season, I think he is a Hall of Fame baseball person. I think that when you look at the categories that people get elected as, right, as a player, as a manager, I think that there's an argument that maybe his managerial accolades fell a little bit short entering this year, even if his tenure obviously didn't. But, you know, I've had this conversation a couple of times, including in some segments with MLB Network, and I I think that there's room for sort of another category. I mean, we have... Uh, individuals, executives in there as well. But I think there's something for, you know, a baseball life. I think that if you were to consider the entirety of the time that Dusty Baker has spent in baseball, 
you wouldn't blink for a second in saying that he's a Hall of Famer. You consider being on deck for the Hank Aaron home run all of the time that he spent as a player. He had a long career becoming the youngest manager in baseball at the time when he was hired, entering the 1993 season, everything that he has done. I think that that is a Hall of Fame resume regardless. I think that winning the World Series would obviously give him the slam dunk sort of managerial resume. But if you ask me, he was already there and absolutely should be. Sarah Langs is a writer for MLB.com, joining us here on Sportsnet tonight, Georgian Show, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sarah, is Kendall Graveman going to be the answer to the question, who was the last pitcher to hit in the National League with that rule? It does seem like it, right? I mean, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but obviously all of the reporting seems to imply uh, that there is going to be designated hitter in the National League and across the board moving forward. But, you know, I mean, not to get all technical, but Shohei Otani is not going anywhere. So technically, there's going to be at least one pitcher hitting. I, You know, I understand the point. And, you know, we're not talking about guys like him. But I am interested to see, I mean, is Madison Bumgarner going to campaign to say, hey, when I start, can I hit? You know, um, obviously he's a little bit less of a case than a Shohei Otani, but I do think that eventually it feels like at least early on, as we still have pitchers who are used to hitting, we will get some 18-inning game where a pitcher pinch hits, something like that. But beyond that, it does feel uh, like we're pretty far from it. But how about Zach Greinke? I mean, Zach Greinke becoming the first pitcher with a pinch hit base hit since 1923 in the postseason last night. That is what the send-off of pitchers hitting needed, if you ask me. Um, Sarah, last night's game, uh, good Lord, took forever to play. Like, it was incredible how long that game went. And is that the point where, does Major League Baseball care how long these games are going? I know it's something that is a point of emphasis that they want things to speed up. But postseason baseball is a different animal. But does baseball, is that something they, can you actually speed up the game? Because they've tried all these things with the pitch clock and let's speed things up. You can't do all these changes. But is it good for the sport when the game's four hours on the, on, their, on, their, on the biggest showcase? And I get it's the World Series. But is it still good for the game that a game's taking four hours to be played? You know, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, I can't speak for, you know, whether baseball cares, any of that exactly. But, you know, I know that it's a popular topic of conversation, especially during the postseason. But ultimately, I mean, of course, I love baseball. I am devastated at the idea that after Wednesday, no matter what, if not after tomorrow, we won't have these games for a really long time. So I don't mind how long they go because I'm just sitting here soaking it all up. But, I, you know, I, I understand the argument that these games could be a bit quicker. And, of course, we're always going to expect postseason to take a little bit more time. I, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about um, just in the media of whether there would be limits on pitchers on rosters and kind of trying to eliminate the bullpen games. And even in these bullpen games where the pitching changes take place in between innings, it does feel like that kind of concept slows the game down. I mean, I think just going from one guy to another – you get a different pace. You have a whole different sort of approach, and that does seem to contribute there. So I could see maybe if I, – I don't know how you limit that, though. I mean, a lot of this has come about due to necessity, and that's the other thing I'll mention is that I know there's been a lot of discussion during the postseason about uh, pitchers not going deep into games and not slowing stuff down. And I, I do think that there are a lot of people forgetting – or not actually forgetting, but – forgetting the impact that the 60-game season had on this year. 
I mean, we're never going to have Bob Gibson throwing three complete games in a World Series again. I, I highly doubt that. But we are, I think, going to get back to the point that we saw over the last few postseasons in 2019, you know, 16, 17, 18, around there, where guys were going seven innings at certain points, going six innings, and sort of what we consider more traditional starts. I really think that teams were in a, really behind the eight ball this year with managing pitcher health. And when you look at a team like the Braves, Ian Anderson, obviously him getting taken out with the no-hitter intact, all of that. I mean, that's a rookie who's made 30 career starts. So, obviously, these teams are trying to preserve that health. So, I, I do think that's important context with just how a lot of that has gone this postseason. We are still coming back from just the 60 games last year. Um, Sarah, is that something that the union is pushing for? Because it's not really good for the union if we're having all these openers and the starting pitchers aren't getting those enormous contracts and pitching those big-time innings. Is that actually good for the baseball players if teams are going with more openers here instead of paying out those big Garricola-like contracts? You know, I'm not really sure. I mean, I haven't really seen, you know, what their stance is or anything like that, but I think you can kind of see it from both sides. I mean, bullpen games mean a higher value placed on those individual relievers, and they tend to mean a higher value placed on a guy like Ryan Yarbrough, right, who has never been a lights-out starter at any point but can be really valuable to come in and give four innings at any point. And those are not the relief pitchers or the pitchers who were previously uh, necessarily valued, but I think that someone like that is incredibly valuable to the Rays and could be really valuable to other teams. But, of course, when you're just looking at money, I mean, the goal, I'm sure, is more Garrett Cole-type contracts for guys. So, with that in mind, I, I'm just not really sure. I mean, I tend to think that, you know, bullpen game is more jobs, more individual pitchers, and that probably seems like a good thing, but I guess it's just a question of um, whether you want the bulk or whether you want a couple individuals being really highly paid like that. You know, you bring up a good point, Sarah, on the on looking back to last season. Cause I, I remember before this this season started, I had a conversation with former Blue Jays pitcher Dwayne Ward, and Dwayne basically said that he said exactly what you're saying that you know the ramp up and ramp ramp down times is something that you're going to have to be a lot more careful of. And sure, could that resolve itself by the end of the year? Absolutely. But you have you have that in the back of your mind, and then the sticky stuff crackdown and guys gripping the ball differently, and you know the forearm tightness that some people talked about. I mean, Hyunjin Ryu here in Toronto talked about that, for example. I know Tyler Glass now did before his injury. So it's just it, I, I totally agree with you that the 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 change from the shortened season last year. To a full 162 this year is definitely something um, something that we got to keep in mind when evaluating the 2021 Major League Baseball season. Um, I do want to ask you a couple more questions about uh, the World Series itself before we move on. And uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Zach Greinke before when we were talking about him becoming the the you know the first guy since 1920 something to be a, a pinch hit pitcher. And uh, if you had told me before this series started that Zach Greinke would have more hits going into Game Six than uh, Jordan Alvarez, I would have I would have laughed. I would have absolutely laughed out loud. And uh, Alvarez, I mean, he can be one of the league's most like not just the Astros, not just the AL, one of the league's most dangerous hitters, as we saw against the uh, against the Red Sox and the ALDS. He's been MIA. What do you think is has been behind the disappearance for uh, for someone like Alvarez, a prolific hitter like Alvarez? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see. I mean, 
you know, it's amazing because, as you said, we saw just how great he can be in the Red Sox series. And I think there were a lot of fans saying, okay, why isn't this guy like this all the time? And I just think, ultimately, uh, the Braves pitching has really found a good way to emphasize his weaknesses. And I think that, overall, the Astros have not been swinging quite as aggressively uh, against the uh, Braves as they were in the uh, ALCS, and I think that when they have been swinging uh, aggressively, swinging at first pitches, that kind of stuff, they haven't really met the same kind of success. So I think that probably comes down to pitch selection, especially on those first pitches for the Braves. But it's really interesting to look at. I mean, it's so funny. I love that Granky. I love that he's doing this. But it is really interesting because we've seen, I mean, even Eddie Rosario, he's hitting better. Uh, than Jordan Alvarez, but he's not doing what he did in the NLCS. And it's just amazing how these heroes can emerge in a round in the postseason. And then the next round, you know, they're really just not not quite there. But, you know, Alvarez's uh, weaknesses have always been kind of breaking off-speed pitches. And my guess, uh, you know, not having those specific games up in front of me is that the Braves are just going after him really aggressively there. All right, well, we haven't talked about the Braves too much here tonight, so I do I do have to ask you, though, they haven't lost consecutive games since I think they ended a four-game skid, I think, in mid-September. And uh, last night, the uh, usually uh, spry, let's call them, bullpen was a little, uh, you know, I'd led them a, t- a teeny bit astray. Uh, do you expect guys like A.J. Minter and company to bounce back just a few days later, considering that Max Fried will be the starter instead of what was essentially a bullpen game with Charlie Morton out for the rest of the series? I do expect them to bounce back. I mean, you know, it almost felt like we were all waiting for that moment to happen with the Braves bullpen for that other shoe to drop. And these guys have been used so much. I mean, if you look at Tyler Matzik, AJ Minter, these guys have uh, pitched in so many games, you know, just in the course of postseason history, if you want to say, just in a single postseason. Uh, Matzik is very close to the record, which is like 14 games. I don't think he'll get enough games to get there but I believe he's at 11. Only a couple of guys even have gotten to 12. And these guys have just been used a lot, and they've been great. But the, I feel like that was kind of bound to happen. And I also think that now it's out of their system. They'll just come to the park tomorrow and be ready. And you mentioned Max Reed, and I know he didn't have a great start for them in his earlier start in this World Series, but he's a great pitcher. He's not the type of guy to come out and with two consecutive clunkers. And I think they're set up really well. I mean, you know, I know the 3-1 lead. I know... Atlanta sports, I know all of those storylines, but I think if you just look on paper, it feels like the Braves game to lose because they have their best pitcher going on full rest compared to a rookie who's been really good for the Astros at times and okay at other times going on three days rest. So, you know, if you're picking between that, I'm taking Max Freed to go five or six innings, hopefully, and then get to the, the great guys in the bullpen and finish this out. Um, Sarah, we know this week when the World Series ends, and I know you'll be sad because it won't be baseball, but we'll be excited here in Toronto because all of a sudden all the offseason talk will start ramping up. We don't know if the Blue Jays are going to sign either Robbie Ray or Marcus Simeon or even potentially both, but if they don't re-sign Simeon, what are some of the options fans should have their eye on when it comes to infielders? Well, you know, obviously there are a bunch of guys who are available who are shortstops, which is not exactly going to fit uh, the bill for the Blue Jays. But I do wonder if, um, you know, a guy like Corey Seager could end up being the type of guy who could end up moving positions, kind of like what Semyon ended up doing for them this year. 
Um, I think that there are some people out there who think Seeger probably ends up at third, um, which also isn't exactly the ideal, but I wonder if he could play second. I wonder if that could work. But I really think the Blue Jays should be zeroing in on Semyon. I mean, uh, what an incredible season. And really the thing that stands out to me is that he was really good defensively at second base. And he had been a little bit of a defensive liability as a shortstop just overall in his career. So I think the necessity of signing that deal and choosing to play second for them because of the presence of Bo Bichette ended up helping him sort of find a position that might make more sense for him. So I, I'm interested in how he's going to be marketed, you know, by his agency as they're having those conversations entering the offseason. But I'm wondering if it will be, hey, Marcus Semien, second baseman. And I, again, I think, I mean, the Blue Jays offense was so much fun. Broken up. Yeah, it was a, was a ton of fun to watch, and uh, a lot of fans in this city very excited what the 2022 Blue Jays are going to look like. Uh, Sarah Langs, writer for MLB.com. Sarah, thanks for this. Enjoy Game 6 tomorrow night. Thank you so much. You guys enjoy it, too. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Always fun. Great stuff from Sarah Langs. Are you hoping for a Game 7, or do you want to see A win a World Championship tomorrow night? I do want to see a Game 7. I do very much want to see uh, Game 7 because Game 7s are fun. Um, I, I have nothing really against either of these cities, really. I don't really care if Atlanta or Houston win. Uh, no rooting interest for me here. But um, I do, I, again, like I've said this to you before, George, I, Dusty Baker, I would love to see him win a World Series. I think that's really, that. if I had to pick one storyline, mm-hmm. I'd love to see Dusty Baker win. But, um, but like you, I, I am... You know, once the World Series is over, you know, you and I are going to be doing these shows, and we're we're going to be talking about at times, like you said, Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon. I mean, you know what? Sarah mentioned Corey Seager. You know what? You know what? I wouldn't be too surprised to see because certainly third base is going to be a huge point of contention for the Blue Jays this offseason. I wouldn't mind seeing them go after a giant piece like a Jose Ramirez, no matter whatever the, whatever the cost may be, as long as it's not, you know, Bo Bichette or Vladimir Guerrero Jr., like, even if it costs like a Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and and other prospects uh, that are not named uh, or Elvis Martinez or Gabriel Moreno, I think you get Jose Ramirez, put him at third, and then you sign like a, you know, if they don't want to bring back Marcus Simeon, I think you sign someone like a Brad Miller or something to fill that spot until maybe some, a Jordan Groshans can come up and be at second base. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about trading Lourdes at this point because he looks like he figured it out right from July on. And Joe Siddle had a great breakdown on Blue Jay Central on how he just changed where his, his foot place and his timing mechanism. Right. And it just changed his swing around. Uh, what about Matt Chapman in Oakland? Yeah. Wouldn't mind Doesn't that. Doesn't that kind of pique your interest if you're the Toronto Blue Jays? Like have some Matt Chapman action and potentially have another third baseman from Oakland flip around? Because <laughs> they need somebody at third base, right? We're yeah. talking about Marcus Simeon, but they need a third baseman on this team yeah, uh, for next season. And it's going to be exciting because the Blue Jays are a team on the rise, and I think they're just a couple pieces away from potentially not only being a playoff team, but being a serious World Series contender, as long as these guys like Bo and Vladdy continue to be on the upswing, which I don't think there's any reason to believe why they wouldn't be. If if Robbie Ray doesn't resign, because I know the Ray-Simeon conversation is going to be something we're having, on, essentially until one of them signs with either Toronto or another team. And, you know, if Robbie Ray does not resign in Toronto, you have a rotation that essentially immediately looks like Jose Barrios right at the top, uh, Hyunjin Ryu and Alec Manoa filling out these number two, number three spot in whatever order you want to go in. And I just, I'm curious, like Nate Pearson, do you think he opens the season as a Ooh. starter in the rotation or do you think he starts in the bullpen? Or the He's arm, got to prove that he can be healthy. Me. I think the spring will be big for Nate Pearson, right? Yeah. Can he stay healthy enough and can he be that guy we all thought he was going to be? Yeah. 
Like he's such a he's such a wild card on this team, right? But even Alec Manoa, can he replicate what he did in his rookie season and be a guy that you can rely on? Uh, I'm not. I hope so. But like, there's some wild cards on this rotation, and it's going to be super interesting what the Toronto Blue Jays do because again, believe these are good problems to have because it's exciting, yeah, right. And they have a lot of prospect capital that they could potentially trade to go out there and fill some holes in this roster. But if you're a Blue Jays fan, you have to be super excited, and you get to see and they get to play the entire season in Toronto because show if they played the entire season in Toronto, I think they would have been a playoff team. Yeah, agreed. That 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 is, I think the the take I agree with the most when it comes to the Blue Jays. You're telling me yeah. they won 91 games this year and they played what like 60% of the season in Dunedin and Buffalo where the quote-unquote home fans are booing them and, and they still yeah. won 91 games and were like what a half and, a game out from the playoffs? Like of course they, were, they for sure would have made the playoffs. And they're living out of a suitcase. Yeah. All that stuff matters, yeah. right? All that stuff matters. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a fascinating offseason. Alright, straight ahead. We'll talk some more hockey. David Panyota is the editor-in-chief of the fourth period. He'll join us. Uh, there's a news breaking of this Kyle Beach saga that just continues to to unfold and we're peeling back more of the onion. Uh, we'll talk to David Pagnon about that and obviously the Toronto Maple Leafs win over the Detroit Red Wings and we'll fill you in on what's going on in that Monday night game and what the Raptors are doing as we're on until the Raptors end their game in the Knicks when uh, William Liu will take over for the Raptors reaction podcast. Sportsnet tonight, Georgian Show, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Nights ranked in reverse order. Date night, medieval night, and number one, Sportsnet Tonight on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet Tonight. Sportsnet 590 The Fan, George Russick, Show Ali. We're on to the end of the Raptors game. In New York against the Knicks. They're in the third quarter right now. William Liu will have the Raptors reaction podcast for you. But right now we want to talk some hockey. David Pagnota is the editor-in-chief of the fourth period. And he joins us here on Sportsnet tonight. David, good evening. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. No, no problem. Thanks for jumping on. Uh, when it comes to the Leafs win uh, Saturday night against the Red Wings, it wasn't definitely the most... Like uh, you could hang it in a museum, but Mitch Marner scoring a goal. What do you think that means psychologically for this team for him to finally get that monkey off his back? Well, that that's the biggest thing is is for him to just get that one goal. However, it happens, bounce, no bounce, off somebody's button in or whatever. As long as he gets that one, um, that that's a huge sigh of relief for these guys, for for hockey players in general to go through a drought when you're expected to be one of the key offensive weapons and you're not producing, it's tough. So for him to get that one off uh, is, is big. It ended up turning out to be the game winner. Uh, but this is for this team, the, the more confidence that Mitch plays with uh, the better it is for this team overall, obviously uh, same goes for Austin Matthews, John Tavares and, and, and alike. So if their top guns are producing well, top guns are feeling well, that means the top guys are going to be doing better. So this is a good sign for the Leafs for him to get that one. 
Well, and, and you know, another guy, David, that I think we were not, I don't know, I don't know if we were worried necessarily about anyone specifically on this team, given it's still relatively speaking early in the season. But John Tavares, I mean, that's a pretty good time for him to have a, a three point night. I mean, it was something you've been kind of waiting for from all of the members of the top line. But I think it, it has to be yeah. gratifying, no matter who it is. I know, I know the opponent being the Red Wings and so on, that's certainly take that into account. But at the same time, you, you take that when it comes to the captain getting three points. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the Wings are off to a pretty decent start to their season. So it's not like this was last season's Detroit Red Wings right. or anything like that. So uh, when you've got, look, Willie Nylander's been solid for, for the first, you know, nine games of this season. Tavares needed to get a few more on the board. He was doing all right, but that's another confidence booster for him to have a multi-point night. Um, it, it helps him, obviously, in, in the long run. For Marner, as I said, to get that goal, um, these are – these are good signs to have regardless of who they're playing. Um, you know, I know Mitch gets a, gets a ton of slack for, for his poor start, but I mean, even Austin Matthews, uh, he, he needs to get going here as well. And, you know, you see Mitch playing better. Maybe they get on the line again, passes it off to, my, uh, to Matthews, they get a goal, and all of a sudden things start to click all over again. So um, good sign for, for Marner, good sign for Tavares, and now next in line, number 34. So we'll see if he starts – uh, you know, getting going as well because, uh, you know, one goal in the first six for him, uncharacteristic, but everybody's, you know, fighting their own battles. Better to do it now than down the stretch or in the postseason. Well, as we've seen, da- maybe too soon for that one. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, David, we know that obviously uh, all, all the pressures on the Maple Leafs to not only win one round, but potentially two rounds in the Stanley Cup yeah. playoffs. But now with this Mitch Marner extension and how the salary cap isn't going anywhere, do you think this core realizes that this is probably their last year together? Do you think that realization is sunken in maybe when, when Morgan Riley signed his extension? I don't know realistically if it's there yet. I mean, if, if this team, you know, makes game seven of, of the second round and, and falls short, or if they make the conference final, I think – those would be the appropriate steps that this team management expects them to take. Obviously, everybody's expecting a cup, but I mean, if they, they, they need to obviously get out of round one. If they get to round two and it's a dogfight, if they get into the conference final and they, and they you know, fall a little bit short, they've got about 6 to $7 million, maybe a little bit more in cap space next year, assuming the cap goes up a million bucks. That's what the anticipation is, that next year's salary cap will go to $82.5 uh, million. So let's say around 7 million bucks in cap space. They don't have too many big time free agents to worry about other than Jack Campbell, which is a, a, obviously a pretty significant one right now. So depending how he performs and how the goalie market shakes out, we may see another goaltender in Toronto next season, assuming the majority of the duties. But for now their focus is on this season. And if they do well and they get farther than they have, and they show that promise, then I think they will try to find a way to keep the bulk of the core intact. Uh, and then, you know, hoping that whatever they bring in pushes them even further the following year. Now, if they win, different story. If they miss the playoffs somehow or get bounced in the first round again, then I think that's when this team has to seriously consider doing some kind of significant shakeup. Do you think, David, just in a general sense, when you look across the rest of the NHL, I know there are some teams that have a Connor Hellebuck and Andre Vasilevsky, 
you know, a, a Sergei mm -hmm. Bobrovsky and so on, right? But I just I wonder, do you think we're slowly, continually starting to move towards more tandems? I mean, I guess this, I feel like we kind of had this conversation a couple of years ago when we were, you know, yeah. talking about the, the Pittsburgh Penguins and doing, doing stuff with Matt yeah. Murray and, you know, Jordan Bennington and Jake Allen at the time as well. And that, that conversation shifted. But I just, I just wonder what your thoughts are on, on the idea of goaltending tandems continually becoming more common. I think in an ideal scenario, you have a goalie that can play, you know, 45 to 50 games, and you've got the other guy that can slot in and play, play the rest, play 30, you know, something in that range. If you can do a 52-30 split or something to that effect, um, I think that would be ideal because you keep your main guy uh, fresher for, for the playoffs when he's going to be carrying the load, basically. Um, so I, the, the tandem thing, I think, can work if it's primarily geared to in that, in that respect. Um, you're always going to teeter to one guy and then playoff time, you know, if it, it's, it's whoever you feel the main guy is unless, you know, somebody just is absolutely on a heater. So I, I think teams are investing more money into the tandem, but I think they would still prefer to have a guy that's going to take care of the load and then run with him in the postseason. In, in Toronto's case, they still, but Jack played well last year. He's been, he's been solid for the most part this season. He's been, you know, the defense just hasn't done him any favors. Didn't do Morazic many favors either um, on, on Saturday for the most part, but they were able to get that W. So uh, give your main guy a bit of a rest, but give, um, give that guy the bulk of the duties. I think that's still the, the, the primary mindset of most teams out there. David, I know it's really early in the season and we just flipped the calendar to November, but is Freddie Anderson the odds-on favorite to win the Vezina right now? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and uh, he's, if he does, he needs to thank his defense because uh, the structure, not just the, the six guys on the blue line, but the overall structure um, of, of Carolina's play has certainly helped out, uh, no question. But, I mean, this is a guy that is, you know, tops in terms of starters in goals against – uh, I think he's second, I want to say, or tied for first in save percentage. Uh, this is this this is a, a, a player that gets out of um, a, an environment where the spotlight is directly on, you know, the goalie. Usually, always is here in, in Toronto, um, among other things. But there's always that that harping on on the goaltending, um, and I, I think he goes to a spot that has wanted him for a while. And he's just comfortable there. And working out with that system in front of him, it's made things a little bit looser for him. So, yeah, it is early, um, obviously. But, I mean, mm -hmm. he, he has just been absolutely phenomenal for Carolina. And their structure really complements the way that he plays. David, what, what start is more surprising to you so far in this young season? Carolina's 8-0-0 start or Florida's 8-0-1 start? Um, yeah, man, th those are uh, just two really good teams. I mean, I'm not shocked. I guess if I have to pick one, I would pick Florida only because uh, I, I, I thought that, that Bobrovsky might have be, it, it might have gotten to him. You know what I mean? Like he, he might not live up to the rest of that contract. Historically, for him, he has a bad year. The following year, he bounces back, wins the Vesna. Follow, does it again, wins the Vesna. So, Last year was supposed to be his bounce back year. I guess I'll give him the benefit of the doubt because of, you know, the pandemic and all that. Um, so this is technically a first 
full 82 game season uh, for him to bounce back. So for me, I would probably think Florida would be a, the, the most surprising to go eight Oh and one in their first nine. Um, because I, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe Spencer Knight was going to be taking the reins and Bobrovsky has just proven that he's, he's still got a lot left uh, in him. but I really like the Panthers. I mean, I've got them coming out of the division and uh, I, 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 actually have them go to the conference final. So um, we'll obviously we'll see, but I like the way they're structured from top to bottom, just like I like how Carolina's depth and the way that they play is, is just solid top to bottom as well. Uh, is Andrew Burnett going to be behind the bench? You don't think there's any chance they look elsewhere. He'll be the head coach for the remainder of the season. I think they're going to wait to see how things play out. If the team maintains a solid pace of play, um, then then I think they stick with him. Maybe they look to bring in a, a, a veteran coach because they've got a pretty young coaching staff as far as coaches and assistant coaches go at the NHL level. Um, so maybe they bring in a veteran guy to, to join the bench, not as the head coach, maybe an associate or something to that effect. Um, but it, look, they had practice today, and it was basically the exact same way and exact same vibe that they had had it all season long, just there was no Joel Quenville. That was really... I would talk to a couple players there. That was really the only difference, um, at least they felt. So I think if they can maintain this and the, their comfort is there, then I think Florida's going to roll with what they got. I do want to stick here uh, in the Atlantic Division, David, and ask you about Buffalo. I got, I got George's take on this earlier, and I'm curious as to if your take will be any different. Is Can we trust what we see in Buffalo, or are we going to be talking about another uh, 12-game losing streak for Buffalo at some point here? I don't know about 12, but um, I, I, I think they'll come back down to earth uh, soon, soon enough. Um, it's, it's a good start for them, certainly 5-2-1. and one, But I, I think other teams will start to catch up. You know, the hockey has an interesting way of evening itself out the way things are supposed to go. Um, great start for Buffalo, but I don't know if, A, they've got enough in the tank um, in their lineup to sustain this, and B, I don't know if the goaltending is going to be able to sustain this. I don't know if Craig Anderson is going to roll all season, playing the way he has in in the first little bit, um, and and I, I just I don't see it. I, I, I like to start good for them, um, but again, for me, I I just think that the other teams will be playing catch up pretty soon. David Pinota, editor-in-chief of the fourth period, joining us here on Sportsnet tonight. Jordan Show, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Uh, David, a lot of smoke uh, going on this weekend about a Jack Eichel potential deal with the Vegas yeah. Golden Knights. Do you have any information, and is that thing even close to being imminent? <laughs> well, it, it certainly seems like everybody thought it was going to happen uh, Friday or Saturday, and hey, nothing. Um, I've got players on Vegas that are asking if this is going to happen. I've got players on other teams, people on other teams asking, is, are, are we getting him? What's the deal? So, um, look, we're, we're, Jack woke up this morning and he was still a saver. And he's probably not too happy about that. And he's probably going to wake up tomorrow a saver too. Um, <laughs> but there's been, there has been traction. In the last eight days or so, uh, other than today, I don't know. I haven't really heard of much, to be honest with you, going on today. But prior to today, the week prior, it, it sounded like there was legitimate traction, that there was belief around the league that this thing was getting there. Um, 
But the financial aspect associated with this deal seems to be the primary holdup, whether it's with Vegas or Calgary or some other team that's still in the mix. Um, the, the dollar amounts still seem to be uh, one of the main issues. And it's not – like I know there, there are reports that Buffalo doesn't want to take on salary. It's not that they want to get rid of Jack's $10 million and that's it. They, they, they're willing to swap it out. They don't want to come back with $15 million worth of cap hit is kind of where that, that notion is. So they're, they're willing to swap it out. They're willing to take back 10, maybe 11 million in, in overall money. Maybe it's nine, however the things even up and how, whatever the compensation is. But, you know, some teams are up against it. Some teams are trying to find ways of, of making it work. And then there's also the complication, even though most of that contract is insured, if he does not return after his, he has his surgery, artificial, or excuse me, artificial disc replacement surgery, then who's on the hook for the actual money? Not the cap hit, because that's, that's a non-factor. The LTIR, the guy, you're good. But whatever money is not part of that insured chunk, who's paying for that? And that's part of the, the question that's, that's kind of been asked, and part of the negotiation process is figuring that out. So maybe that was the reason ultimately things didn't happen. I don't know definitively why this hasn't happened yet when I was told, a lot of other people were told that Friday, Saturday, it looked like this was actually happening. Um, but obviously, you know, this is a very complex matter. The only thing we now know for sure is that whoever acquires him, well, they're comfortable in allowing him to have artificial disc replacement surgery uh, because they're still in that mix and they're still trying to make it happen. Um, David, I'm not a medical professional, um, and I know show isn't. I don't want to speak for you. I don't know. Maybe you went to medical school, but artificial (laughs) disc replacement surgery sounds very serious to me. Uh, yeah, well, it is, of course. And uh, look, this isn't—they've they, had or Jack's camp has had all the experts on their side that are backing the ability to go through the surgery and come out of it successful on the other side. And all of those documents, or at least most of them anyway, uh, have been relayed to the teams that are trying to make this happen, trying to acquire him, which is why some of these teams seem comfortable now. This hasn't happened, obviously, in any with any current athlete, uh, not current as in today, but uh, a, a player playing in a season in any of the four major sports leagues has not ever, they've never undergone this. This is a brand new thing for, for pro athletes at this level um, in any of the major four league sports, and maybe five, no soccer, MLS in the mix. Um, so... This is it's like the Tommy John of Tommy John, but it'll call yeah. it'll be called the Jack Eichel. <laughs> Maybe it may end up being the Jack Eichel. So, uh, you know, if, if it works and again, all of the all of the medical experts that are behind this um, are, are very strongly behind it. They believe that this is the best approach as opposed to a fusion, which in, in contact sports and a lot of them specifically in football, uh, you know, fusion surgery on 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 the spine results in players' longevity being diminished significantly. This allows for, at least the argument is, it allows for a full um, healthy career after the fact. So that's what they're hoping for. I don't know this definitively. Like you, I'm not a doctor, but um, that's what the argument is. And that's what the teams that are trying to acquire him seem to be comfortable with allowing him to do. Now, but again, if, it, if he comes back in the end of February and he's just not himself or not up to snub, well, that's where the complication lies, and that's what they're trying to figure out from a compensation perspective. 
Okay, well, that's what I wanted to ask you. What are some of the pieces the Golden Knights or even the Flames would be willing to give up for Jack Eichel? What are some of the things you've heard? Well, so the asking price, in terms of specifics, names and players and stuff, I'm not sure other than I know one player that Buffalo has liked is Alex Tuck uh, out of Vegas. Now, Tuck is injured right now. He had off-season surgery. He comes back in, I think, the new year, um, six months after July. Uh, So it's a little after the new year. So other than him, and we've heard Nick Hague, and we've heard, you know, Krebs and and a couple other things here in Vegas, uh, Calgary, it it seems to be a little more complicated in terms of trying to pinpoint what the names are. The bottom line is that uh, excuse me, uh, Buffalo from the get-go has asked for the equivalent, what would be four first-round picks. So an actual first-round pick, a prospect or two that are that echelon of a player, or an active player or two, young NHL current player that are that fit that mold. Um, that seems to have been the price from the get-go, and it hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is the fact that they, the Sabres seem to be willing to go through this you know, conditional stage as part of a package. But does that mean now it's two guaranteed and two pieces that are conditional? Is it three guaranteed pieces and one conditional or three and two conditional? That's all the stuff that's being discussed and jumbled around. But the one thing for sure is that Buffalo has not really wavered from that asking price. Um, and and uh, to a certain extent, I commend them for it because, I mean, if Jack comes back fully healthy, he's still one of the best at his position in the game, and he's only 24. Uh, David, I do want to ask you, of course, about the uh, the NHL Gary Bettman press conference from earlier this uh, yep. this afternoon. And I mean, I, you know, I feel like we've seen a lot of Gary Bettman press conferences, but boy, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a press conference from 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 the commissioner where it was so poorly received in terms of, and for I think for good reason for, for with his answers to some of these questions. Yeah, and, and I, I, try, I tweeted about this, trying to get everyone to under, uh, understand to a certain extent. It's hard to do, especially on social media. Sure. Um, but but <laughs> Gary Bettman is a lawyer by trade. Like he went to law school. He finished very well. He's got his doctor in law. Bill Daly does as well. He's a deputy commissioner. So these guys have always known how to properly construct their answers and how to properly respond to questions, even questions that are some in, in a bit of an attacking manner, which were some of the questions that were asked uh, today. At least that's what it sounded like. Um, so I, I guess that people aren't going to be overly you know, receptive to those types of responses when you're dealing with matters like this. But they also have to be you know, somewhat sensitive to the subject, and, and they can't just respond as if you know, they're – talking at a bar or something like that. It's certainly different. These are different circumstances. Um, could some of the answers have been a little bit, you know, different, better, maybe? Sure. Uh, so I also get the criticism, of course. Um, I have some myself. So, look, this whole this whole situation um, is, is obvious that everybody agrees that this should have been, should have been dealt with a heck of a lot differently and a hell of a lot better at the time, and it didn't. And so whatever we say should have, would have, could have, unfortunately didn't happen. So everybody's trying to deal with it right now the best that they can, I suppose.
Do you were, were you surprised at all about the uh, the the results of the the Kevin Chevel day off thing? Right. I mean, I know I know we we saw that the meeting between him and I guess Jets ownership was I suppose postponed. Um, I think postponed. I don't know yeah. if it was postponed until tomorrow or if it was just indefinitely because I think the Jets owner was sick. So I think that that might play a part in any anything being resolved in Winnipeg. But I just I were you surprised at all from from that stance or I guess that plays into the more you know like the the thing you're talking about Batman and company being a, you know lawyers and that's kind of how lawyers. Answer answer questions yeah kind of um <laughs> uh first of all the, the the press conference was shovel day off and mark chipman is they're supposed to happen tomorrow now. right okay um so we'll, we'll see if we'll see if that's still okay if he's uh chipman's up to it um from a health perspective but he, he's been adamant that he wants to be there because i it's clear he wants to um explain his side as well in terms of the overall decision process i'm not uh, surprise uh, of of the outcome with respect to Shovel Dayoff, um, because there certainly seems to be enough. Uh, well, first of all, his stories have aligned that, that they haven't changed. Whereas you know, Quendels we found out that oh, he got caught in a lie uh, because there was a meeting that he was a part of prior to the meeting of the mind, so to speak, in May, um, which Cal Beach revealed in his interview last week and good on him for continuing to provide insight into how they all failed him, um, uh, sadly, unfortunately. Um, but with respect to, to Kevin Dayoff, you know, he's an AGM. Um, he, he's brought to light of the situation, and the entire consensus appears to have been John McDonough, the president, is handling this. And then he goes back to whatever duties he was doing in, in, during the cup final, whether he was prepping for the draft, or, you know, trying to fo- trying to watch some of the final and, and contribute to the scouting department. I, I don't know what those responsibilities were, but there are different aspects. Uh, and Gary Bettman su- kind of alluded to this and tried to explain that different roles. That doesn't necessarily mean you're part of every little minute detail with respect to how a team is run. Um, so he believed, according to Gary Bettman, that it was handled. And a few weeks later, after the cup, the guy was out of the team. Okay. Uh, optically, maybe from his perspective at the time, he thought the matter was handled, and that's the end of it. I can give him a be- the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent that he believed that. Um, could he have followed through? Could he have done this? Could he have done that? I suppose. But, you know, if he expects his team president to deal with it, and, and that's certainly the consensus narrative among everybody involved here, um, then he... he I guess he felt that he did what he needed to do, and Gary Bettman seemed to have agreed with that. Okay, David, I, th- I don't think there's anybody who can sit there and say, wow, uh, the NHL and the Blackhawks have at least handled this well at all, and they haven't. And right. obviously the no. organization failed Kyle Beach 11 years ago when this actually happened. The one thing I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you, and I'm not making any excuses for anybody in all of this because it's, it's just an awful situation all the way around and how it was handled. But why the hell would the Blackhawks deny what happened in December of this of last year? Like, this report came out, and they still denied it. Like, I right. get that what happened 10 years ago, and, and you made mistakes, and they wanted to win a championship, and I'm not making any excuses, but to even deny it in December, I think, is even the worst look in an awful situation. Oh, absolutely. And... and- that's like where you had for me, a chance to make it right in December, and yet you still denied it. Like that's what's even yep. more disgusting in all of this. 
Right. And, and, to, and, and that's part of the argument for a lot of people, myself included. How did they only get fined two million bucks? Like they, they denied it, as you said, and the league claims that they weren't aware of these specific allegations until this May. So and the team told them there was nothing to it. So I, I don't know if this was the I, I, I don't I don't have answers for you because I'm, at, I'm trying to understand that as well. You know, unless it was Rocky Wirtz and Danny Wirtz that were saying the owners of the team and, and basically saying, oh, no, this is crazy. We're not. There's, there's no way this is this is accurate and didn't ask Stan Bowman or anybody else, Al McIsaac or whomever. Um, McDonough was was out, uh, I think, last year, if I remember correctly, from the organization. So I, I don't know how that didn't levy a harsher punishment, quite frankly. Um, and, and that's, that's part of, that's part of this whole thing. You know, the fact that the NHLPA, uh, Don Fear was, was made aware of this and they didn't follow through. And I don't understand how if the heads of the PA are aware that the heads in the NHL aren't aware there, there's a lot of questions that still are unanswered or at the very least just don't make sense as to how that process was so poorly, uh, just how how poorly the whole thing was handled. Um, It's still still pretty mind-boggling, and I'm sure there's still going to be more questions and and people that are following this that have been covering this are going to try to unearth a little bit more because there's still some things that just don't sit right. Yeah, it just feels like uh, there's way more to peel back of the onion when all of this. Uh, Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you about uh, I know Kyle Beach alleged that some of the players uh, were, were taunting him and using homophobic slurs when they found out about the actual incident. Do you think we'll ever find out who those players were? That's a good question. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, you know, we, we've heard that some players, you know, knew about it and others didn't. Some believe, like Brent Sopel and Nick Boynton, believe that everybody knew. Um, and, and Sean Lalonde, who's playing overseas now, he, that, that he was on one of the black aces then too. He believes that everybody knew. And then you hear, you know, Duncan Keith and, and Patrick Kane saying, I didn't know who it was until the interview came out. Uh, it, it's very hard to dissect and comb through this when you hear one thing and then later on you hear the other. I, I don't know. Um, at this point, I'm not sure, at least publicly, what good that would do because I would assume those players are either at the end of their careers or no longer playing. So from a public perspective, I don't know what the benefit would be other than us just finding out and having you know, some kind of relief in knowing who it was and that it's being handled. As long as whoever did that, uh, they're handling that internally, I, I'm fine with that. Uh, but I, I think we're all on the same page that if those guys knew and were taunting him, that there needs to be, yeah. you know, some kind of remedying of that. Yeah. I think it's just for transparency, right? Like, let's not hide well, anything yeah. about this. At this point, the truth needs to come out from top to bottom. And everybody, like, we're at the point now where we need to know everything. 
And I don't think right. there's anybody who should be shielded from this if, if, if they're at fault in any way, shape, or form in covering up this or taunting that poor guy who had to endure this and has to live with this for the rest of his life. I think for the Blackhawks' sake and for everyone's sake and, quite frankly, for the NHL's sake, the more transparency, the better. And, and I think I would – the only way I would ever I, – I agree with you. I would take a quick step back and say – does Kyle Beach want this out? Does oh, he want sure. every, if he wants everything out, then fair game. But if, sure. if he's you know, if he doesn't want this player or that player, as long as that's what I mean by as long as he is being remedied in some fashion, if, if it's right. an apology and they look I'm a stupid kid and I was messing around, I apologize sincerely. If that's yeah. good enough for him, yeah. Otherwise if he wants it all out there, by all means, because I agree with you. I think this yeah, that's a great point. And it's just it's such a hard situation. And hopefully the hockey world can finally wake up and, and, and be aware of all these things that are happening that have, have happened and potentially stop anything that could happen in the future. Uh, David Penyota, editor in chief of the fourth period. David, great stuff. Thanks for this. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And, and show it's not like uh, we know the whole horrendous, horrific Graham James situation. Right. Like, there's a history of this in the National Hockey League. And for them to to hide it, it's just uh, it's so awful. And you had a chance to come clean here when the report came out, and you still denied it. That's even a worse move. It's like well, you know it, the truth was eventually going to come out. Well, I think that – and that's why when I look back to the Gary Bettman press conference, I do I do hear what David is saying when it comes to, you know, he's a lawyer and that he's going to always approach things from that mindset and that's kind of what he's been doing his entire tenure as commissioner. But I think that's why, like, the, the answer he had on Sheldon Kennedy where he kind of like – it seemed kind of like dismissive, right, of Sheldon Kennedy and the, the, the really traumatic experiences he experienced and, and basically just saying that because – they're not going to be contacting him or not. They don't really have a mind to because his abuse didn't come at the NHL level. I, I don't know that that rubbed me the wrong way only because if this is a problem within, in terms of bullying and, and, you know, larger picture issues at the, at the issue at the, at the sport of hockey, I guess I should say not at, not just within the national hockey league, but just within the, within the sport down to the minors, then I think that's something that has to be addressed. Right. Cause I think that the, one of the, one of the things you can do for a survivor of abuse is I think validate their experiences. Right. And, it, and, and I think that the, the answer from Batman, I don't think really did that in any way, shape or form. And, and Sheldon Kennedy has done some really important work on that. And I just, I don't know, I don't want to, not to make it all about one guy, but that's, I think, why I was so surprised. Because if you don't want this to happen anywhere at any level ever again, then you have to bring in as many people into this conversation as humanly possible. Right, that's a great point. All right, Raptors game almost winding down. We're going to hand things over to William Lou soon for the Raptors Reaction Podcast. But we'll tell you what's going on in Monday Night Football. And I want to answer a texter. Uh, who wanted to find out about the Buffalo Sabres and their attendance problems. We'll do that straight ahead. Sportsnet tonight, Georgian show. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Sportsnet 590, 590, The Fan. Sportsnet tonight. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Show Ali George Russick here for another minute. Raptors on their way to a big win in New York against the Knicks without Scotty Barnes in the lineup. William Liu will have the Raptors reaction podcast. Just want to answer one real quick question. Adam in North York shot us a text show. All right. 590, 590. Attendance problems for the Buffalo Sabres. 
Uh, the team's been bad for years, and Canadians can't go over the border to watch games. Oh, and by the way, none of the Canadian teams are selling out games either. Attendance is an issue throughout the NHL because, oh, wait, we're playing games during a global pandemic. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super surprised that uh, the Sabres still have attendance issues. I mean, heck, I mean, you and I have spoken spoken about this before, George, on this very program. I think that I think the first night we did this in a long time was when it was the night of the Leafs home opener, and the Leafs didn't even sell out the the home opener. They're con- no. I'm, I'm constantly getting emails from the Leafs being like, "Hey, you want to come to the game? Discount on three games if you buy all at the same time, right?" Like, I, I'm sure that if the Leafs, one of the most popular by ticket sales. And attendance, one of the most popular teams, pardon me, in the entire NHL, then, boy, the Sabres, a team that has historically struggled with attendance, I'm sure is is really hurting. That's really hurting the bottom line right now. Yeah, no question. What isn't hurting is the Toronto Raptors in New York against the Knicks. Going to pick up a win here, it looks like, against uh, the Knickerbockers. William Liu will have the Raptors reaction podcast straight ahead. Show this has been fun. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, man. I hope. Uh, I hope next time we do it. I think it, I'm not sure if. Uh, well, we were going to host tomorrow, but I guess uh, Game Six has now uh, yeah. ethered ether that one. But I, next time we, we do it, hopefully it's not a opposite a Raptors or a Leafs game, so we can uh, have some more Raptors coverage. I love. I got to say, man, I love talking about the Toronto Raptors. It's going to be a fun year. Yeah, especially with what Scotty Barnes has done yeah. so Ooh. far in his young career. Just disappointing and couldn't play tonight because of his thumb injury. Big thanks to producer Jeremy Anitat and Danielle Furtado uh, on the board. Uh, that's it for us. The Raptors Reaction Podcast is next. We'll talk to you, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.